everybody. Welcome to uh, Fuzzy Warbles, the Skint Julep Ju- uh, Music Discussion Podcast. I'm Brent Sanders. I'm here with uh, Reverend Jim Sales. Hello. Jeff Scruggs. Howdy. And Matt Kearns. Hey. Um, we've had a pretty spirited discussion before we even started rolling tonight, so it's kind of a, uh, a meta episode for us. This is one we probably should have started off doing. We're going to talk tonight about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which the four of us all seem to agree is a pretty wretched institution overall. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to the actual museum, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland, I recommend it. Uh, except the fact it should have been in Memphis instead of Cleveland, but we're going to pick nits about that right now. It's a it's a wonderful building. There's a lot of things to see. I, I took my kids up there a few years ago because I raised them right, and I felt like they needed to learn about uh, Buddy Holly. So it's it's a great place to go. However, the people who often get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are too often not the people who deserve it, and we think there's quite a few people who should have gone into the Hall of Fame that are not in there. So that's going to be our category tonight, is artists who are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who we think should go in there. And then we're going to go at the end of it and take a few people out of there. As always, the format, each of us has come up with a top five. Uh, any matching entries in the top five, we put on a top tier that we'll talk about at the end of it. These are the ones who are kind of our consensus picks. Um, we're going to go ahead and start with uh, Jim, Reverend Jim. Go ahead and start uh, with your fifth best artist that belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, Lord. Um, I guess number five, I'll go with uh, Slayer. Cool. That'd be my pick. <clears throat> That's an interesting choice. Uh, it, it, it's it's funny because the world seems to be divided by into a lot of Slayer versus Metallica guys, um, and I'll confess I tend to fall in the Slayer category myself, um, and I, I think they're pretty underrated. And I don't I don't know that people realize their influences is as heavy as it is. Do you? They don't have any idea. Right. You know, a lot of people walk around mounting this big four stuff, and Megadeth had a nice run, and. Uh, Metallica should quit a long time ago. Uh, whereas Slayer, up until recently, and Anthrax, ever since the return of Joey Belladonna, those are the two of the big four that I'm still listening to. I, I, uh, no, Anthrax is on my. Done. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think Slayer is now done, but Anthrax doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Anthrax is on my bubbling under list, too. But uh, Slayer, I'm, it, it, it's a band that, that their fans are rabid. Their fans are as rabid as deadheads. And they have, well, let's put it this way. Metallica has Lars, Slayer, has Dave Lombardo. So, who are you going to choose between those two, you know? Slayer is like a four-piece wall of sound, just a four-piece rhythm section, and they're amazing to me. Um, I, th- I thought that was... Before anybody else did, Slayer figured out to slow down. Exactly. Exactly. Faster and faster. And so when seasons and the events came along and they slowed down, that's when you could really separate out the people who were actually paying attention versus the people who just had it on the background. Because it made perfect sense. And, you know, it's it's impossible to discount their influence. There's no, you can't even envision metal where it would have gone had they not existed. I, I agree. 
it, it's it's a completely. It's funny because they've got kind of an insular sound. There's no one that sounds quite like them, even though somebody listening to that kind of music didn't have that sort of familiarity would think so. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You've never heard anybody go, oh, they sound like Testament. No, and, no. And that's not like a Testament either. Uh, I think they're a fantastic band. And you've never heard anybody go, well, Testament sounds like Slayer. The, the little micro or whatever you want to call it, subdivisions of genres in certain parts of metal make a lot of sense. I think it's a bunch of affectation garbage uh, with other branches of, of the rock, pop, tree, metal. It makes some sense. The difference between thrash and death metal and friggin' uh, whatever they call it, sing-along metal from Scandinavia. You know, the, 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 uh, the heavy metal family tree or whatever that guy did on VH1 10, 15 years ago did a pretty good job of breaking that down. Well, it... <clears throat> their their sound is is so totally unique, and like you said, they actually had a, a progression. The the band actually progressed over the years, and they're still. I mean, they're not still. They're done. I agree, but they they had such a body of work that uh, and and another band that we talked about. You'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, I find a lot of similarities between them, but that's that's I'll, I'll I think that's a great choice. I, I don't think. Boy, he could. He could. What well, What would you consider the uh, the emblematic Slayer song? Oh dear God! Uh, when they were still playing as fast as they could, probably War Ensemble. Okay, War Ensemble's a good choice. Sorry, you only get one. Which one's it going to be? Okay. Your choice. Which is it? Seasons in the Abyss. I agree. I, I, I was hoping you would choose Seasons in the Abyss. All right, Matthew. You're up, buddy. Um, yeah, I think for my number five, I'm not going to name a, a band because I like to be uh, antagonistic to the whole point of this fucking podcast. But uh, instead, I'm going to talk about people that uh, are in bands where the band is in, but the this member of the band isn't. Um, and, and that's happened a couple times. Um, the reason that I, that I thought of it was uh, because when Steely Dan was inducted, Walter Becker took his time uh, instead of you know, giving a long speech about how thrilled he was because he wasn't. He said, why the fuck am I in here and Jimmy Carl Black isn't? Um, which is a good damn point, I think. Um, but there are a couple of artists where the, where, you know, the band is in, like Chicago, for instance, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Bill Champlin and Jason Sheff uh, aren't. And if it's for a body of work, it seems like the guys that contribute to that body of work might get you in. Black Sabbath is in. Uh, Ronnie James Dio is not in as part of Sabbath. Uh, well, that's that's been a long-standing argument with the Hall. Warren Haynes and the Allman Brothers e- band. Exactly. There, there's been a lot of bands like that. Uh, it, when Deep Purple was was inducted, they inducted um, the, two of the our guys on the the first Deep Purple, Nick Semper and Rod Evans. They couldn't find one of them was inducted. Uh, Rod Evans, they couldn't find him, and Nick Semper was not. So there, there's no real consistency in how the, the Hall of Fame committee... By the way, the Hall of Fame committee, just so we know, is run by Jan Winter, who is a longtime publisher of Rolling Stone, and we'll say about a thousand words about before we're over tonight, but it's a horrible organization. They don't really have any set way of doing things. 
Right. But, I mean, and, and I think that's one of the problems that we all have with the Rock Hall of Fame and maybe with most halls of fame uh, is that at some level it's, it's just arbitrary. Who's in, who's out, uh, and why? Uh, the last one I want to say is that the birds are in, Graham Parsons not as part of the birds, and why the fuck not? I really thought he was. I, he may I, he not might, be. He might be in he there may otherwise, but he's not in there as part okay, of the birds. I, no, he's not in there on his own, I don't think. I don't yeah. think he is. Uh, so basically, you're making the stand for Sidemen. Now, we talked about this. I'm just saying, look, if you're going to bring a band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, just go ahead and put everybody that was in well, that band. And not, not a guy that played with them one night in 87. Well, Bruce, but if you were on a couple albums. Bruce Springsteen was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The E Street Band was inducted separately. Right. Uh, however, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were inducted all together, and they had all the members of the Heartbreakers that, that were in well, there. So, like, you take a guy like Elvis Costello. If mm-hmm. Elvis Costello goes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is Elvis Costello in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because if he's not, I should have added him on my list. Yes, no, he is. I he think is. he is. He but, is. okay, so do you put Elvis Costello in there with the attractions? With the impressions? Or what was the other uh, the other Elvis? Well, I think I'm thinking of the attractions. That's it. Right. Well, but I'm saying but, there's, he's had a couple bands, yeah. all good. If you put Bob Dylan in there, do you put him in there with, with the Hawks? Do you put him in there with... Which which group that played behind him? The Grateful Dead. Right. <laughs> uh, if you know that this argument, that they now have a category for musicians. Right. And the first people they put in there were like, uh, well, James Jamerson, who is the greatest bass player of his of his genre and era. No one played a precision bass better. Nobody even came close. Um, and and guys like um, we we could talk a lot about guys who belong in that category. Yeah, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan was in that category. Leon Russell was actually kind of in that same yeah. as a musician rather than well, an it, artist. Right. So I, I see what you're saying, though. Some of these guys, there, there seems to be a very arbitrary thing. And I agree with you. The mothers belong in there, not just Frank Zappa. Right. Now, I understand Frank Zappa was, yeah, you know, a figurehead, um, but there was no reason to leave some of those guys out. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's even more true when you look at uh, people where you know you have a, a front man that had a band for the entirety of their career or most of their career, uh, but that band didn't get in. I'm not a big fan of Billy Joel, but if you like Billy Joel's music, he had the same band for an awful long time on an awful lot of hit records. So if you're going to put him in there, bring in those guys too. I hate Billy Joel, but I love Liberty, Liberty DeVito DeVito's as drummer, man. Yes. Liberty was badass. I'm with you. Okay, that's good, because A, it saves us time because you won't be able to choose a song for all these people. Very good, very good. Uh, Jeffrey? Uh, At number five, I'm going Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth? Who are not in. Jeff just threw us a curve here because he didn't bring him up earlier. Um, that's not a. I, I don't think they're. I don't think they're belonging in there as, as deserving as the other band you mentioned. Are you going to put the other band in there too? Because I think they belong in there more than Sonic Youth does. Which one are you referring to? Well, we'll have to talk about that later. I'll let you know if you don't bring it up. Okay. Okay. Make your case for Sonic Youth. I my, as far as in well, number one, it's hard for me to overlook anybody again, as they just discussed. Uh, and. I'm sitting here and I'll offer my two cents. It's hard for me sometimes to get behind the idea of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's hard for me to measure music by the pound. But, given the criteria we have on that, uh, you know, when you wind up with an album, basically, that's probably universally in anybody's top 100 albums, 
uh, your influences range as far as and, and wide as as the Sonic Youth has, especially on a lot of the rock scene that would come out, you know, later a lot of the grunge scene, things of that nature. Uh, and Thurston Moore, I you know, I basically see him as an innovator, and I think they've met enough enough of the criteria, given what the Rock Hall of Fame demands, to have an entrance. Give us your emblematic song there. For my Teenage Riot. Teenage Riot. Excellent. All right. Um, my fifth, <clears throat> excuse me, my fifth choice was uh, Little Feet. Um, and Jeff, I, I got four knocked out of my original listing. You had three. I think everybody else had two. Um, but uh, Little Feet is somebody that, uh, or a band that has a, it has a, an amazing catalog of work. Even though the last ten years or so they've been kind of treading the 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 I wouldn't call it the oldie circuit, but they've been playing the same stuff. They haven't put out original things in a few years. But from about their first album, even after Lil George left the band, who was the founder of the band, they put out a pretty remarkably strong catalog. There was nobody quite like them either. No. That kind of... They were kind of... Uh, they were... Uh, they were like a Dixie Fried sound. A, they were a Dixie Fried band, if yeah. it can be anything. They were, they were more of an urban band than the band, which had that sort of rural vibe to them. You had probably the second greatest slide guitarist in, in rock and roll history, in Lowell George. You've got... We have disagreement on that? No. I, I, I was just thinking, <laughs> that's a very damn good call. Oh, yeah. Lowell was, was an amazing musician. I mean, speaking of, of musicians who played with the mothers, right? Uh, that's where Lowell came from. And somebody who could do a little bit of everything. Oh, absolutely. George. Absolutely. I mean, to me, they, they wind up in there basically, you know, by virtue of Waiting for Columbus, which in itself was just one of those albums. The way, the, the, the way that it was recorded and produced and everything else. They, they also had, first of all, they had... Uh, Bill Payne and uh, Richie Haywood was the drummer. Am I right on that? Richie Haywood, was that who the drummer was? Yeah. So. yeah. Which would be the only Haywood I'd put in. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, it, it was just an amazingly rhythmic band. Uh, that, and they, they, they were very percussive, which doesn't automatically put you in there. There were. No. We've also got to find out, we still not found out about the meters, did we? What are we... Did we find out if the meters were in the hall? The meters are, as far as I can tell, not in okay. the hall. Okay. Well, in that case, we have made a glaring omission, but I'm going to stand by a little feet. The meters are our best band that did not make it into our, <laughs> our list. Our list. But Little Feet, and if you had to choose an emblematic song from Little Feet, you guys know what it's going to be. What? what? Well, go ahead. Yeah, it's not going to be Dixie Chicken. It's going to be Skin It Back, okay? Uh, but... It could also be Willin', it could be Apolitical Blues, and Don't Bogart That Joint. There's a million great songs. Uh, I'm going to go with Skin It Back. That's just my personal favorite. So, no, but the one folks will know will be Dixie Chicken. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, it's funny. I've heard more bands cover Willin' than I have any of them. Really? Well, yeah, okay. All right. Um, we're up to the fourth one. Reverend Jim, you there? Yeah, here. You've been quiet except for the clinking of ice. Jeff, I'm 
hardly second. Uh, and I'm not trying to take his pick, but I, I fully support Sonic Youth. I'm with that. Uh, but anyway, number four for me would be the Smiths. Uh, I, just, I don't think there's any rational argument at all to be had against it. Yeah, you can hate Morrissey. Uh, you can hate the band, whatever. But influence, uh, good board, pop culture, phenomenon status. There's more people wearing Smith shirts now than there were when they were together. Um, I, just, I, I think it fits that they happen to have one of the best guitarists that ever was. And a, and a pretty good little rhythm section. I'll I, I tell you this, in following up with uh, Matt's sentiment, I put Johnny Marr in there in a heartbeat. Yeah, I, I'm not wild about Morrissey in any stretch of the imagination. I'm not going to argue with the body of work. But uh, Johnny Marr, to me, is what elevated that band to just ridiculous levels. I, I, we've all got one of those kind of hidden favorite uh, members of a band. Johnny Marr is mine. I, I think he's an amazing musician. He does. He played with the Cribs. He played with Modest Mouse. Everybody sounds better with him. Well, it wasn't hard to make He's Modest Mouse sound better, but you know. All right, I think it's an excellent choice. I do. I, I I don't like the Smiths. You know that. But I've got band on my list that I really can't stand because I think they belong there. So, um, Matthew, what do you got? Oh, oh, Jim, Reverend Jim, what's your emblematic song? Here because I want to hear Johnny Marr, which means I want to hear Sweet Tender Hill again. Cool. Okay, that's that's great. I love that. If you chose if you chosen heaven, I was miserable. Now I was just gonna just cry right here on the air. Matt, number my number four is uh, Link Ray, um, which Link Ray is one of those artists that you know if, if you're gonna include anybody for one song, uh, which there's an argument to be made whether you should or not. But I think if you are, Link Ray for Rumble is as uh, foundational to the rock and roll sound. I mean, you got guys like Iggy Pop who'll tell you, without Rumble, he doesn't get involved with rock and roll. That's what he's basing him his, his sound on. Uh, I think it was influential to Neil Young. It was influential to Led Zeppelin. I mean, Rumble is just one of those songs that is rock and roll. Uh, it's a foundational, seminal moment in rock and roll music. And I think that, that beyond that, Link Ray's sound uh, is itself, even beyond Rumble, it was something that people wanted to sound like. People wanted to emulate that, you know, that that noise, that... Uh, Boy, did he ever really teach people about reverb, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, was a, it was a primal sound. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I'll give a shout-out to Link Ray, uh, Shawnee, uh, uh, Native American, one of yes. the, the great Native American uh, rock and roll stars, of which there are a pretty decent number, uh, you know, kind of. I, I think it was John Cipollina of uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, the guitar player for Quicksilver Messenger Service, who was listing his favorite guitar players, and he chose Link Ray, and he said, Rumble taught me how to swear without using words. You know, Rumble is the only That's a great instrumental song. song that was ever banned in space. Yes, yes. They did not let you play Rumble because to them that was the sound of of rebellion, of raw sexuality. I mean, and really that's what rock and roll is at its heart. Well, what and did it's, Jimmy, in, it's there. What did Jimmy Page say, and this might get loud, he put on the link, he basically put on Rumble and then said, and when you're, I believe I'm paraphrasing here, when you're 14, 
this can sound pretty rude. And oh, that, sure. that was basically the bottom line. It, it speaks him. volumes that we're sitting here talking about all these quotes about this one, one song, song. Right. And this one sound, and we're all kind of looking at it as this sort of bedrock. But it, it is, as much as Scotty Moore was or Chuck Berry. Yeah. And I mean, I think it you've put got it things like, like Dick Dale. You've got the sure. Ventures, who I think the Ventures are in and Dick Dale's not. Um, in that's terms the way, of in, I think in the that's rock the way and roll thing, but you know, there, there's this this idea of this instrumental rock, uh, you know, which which maybe isn't what we all consider rock and roll because there is a vocalist, you know, thing there. But man, I just think Rumble it's it's just a great rock. So, song. what would be the emblematic song we're looking here? Uh, I wish I knew a song that wasn't Rumble, so I could <laughs> I could ironically say it. But it's, it's Rumble. It's Rumble. It's got to be. I, a side note about the Ventures. Uh, Jerome Arnold, if you're listening, my old buddy Jerome. Jerome's a fine guitar player. Jerome uh, had signed a petition one time to have the Ventures inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, this is before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame started their musician category. He tried to have, he signed this position, a petition to have the, the Ventures put in. And the the committee wrote back that the Ventures were not in because. They were only musicians. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, had, you had all these musicians here ready to kill somebody over that. All right, Jeffrey, you're up. At number four, I have David Gilmore. And I realize this is going to be a problem for anybody who thinks, you know, I will be Floyd Ben. And we had a little pregame discussion here about this very subject. He got, he got a little spirited. I, my argument on Gilmore is... He's had a lengthy career outside of Pink Floyd. Now, one can argue over the amount of success he's had with his albums. I think it's been the biggest thing's been his influence. No one else to me, um, and this is a big statement, but I can't think of anyone else who basically summed up the decade of the 70s on the guitar any better than him. He's had a hand in probably... Three or four of the the greater solos that have been written out there. Uh, the one, you know, a lot of people tell you, you know, comfortably numb, that sort of thing. Time, it's generally considered the greatest. Yeah, solo of the rock. Well, well, I mean, and and the thing is, is uh, his it, to me at the bottom line, it's been his influence and what he's done away from Floyd. You know, you couldn't make that argument for Nick Mason, Rick Wright, or anything else. Roger Waters is another subject entirely. One for him, one for his ego. But, you know, with, with Gilmore, that's the reason why I think, individually speaking, he should be inducted. Okay, first of all, let's, let's, let's get this out of the way. We, we talked about this beforehand. Some artists are in there three or four times. We talked about Eric Clapton, who I think is in there 37 times. Right. Yeah. He's Just, in there for every time he ever picked up a guitar. Yes. But, uh, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Neil Young was mentioned because he had a separate career from Crosby, Seals, Nash, and Young, or Buffalo, Springfield. I mean, Neil Young's in there three right. times. Uh, David Crosby's in there twice, um, proving that you can be a raging dick and still yeah, get into the Hall of Fame with no problem. My well, problem, Ty Cobb and the baseball, same thing. Well, my problem with, with, with David Gilmore is this. I don't think his solo work is easily differentiated from Pink Floyd. To me, even... like, And I love... Uh, you and I used to talk about how great About Face was. That's a that, great in the first one too. Yeah, they're, they're good records. I'm not knocking that, but I see them more as I don't see 
if you look at somebody like John Lennon or George Harrison, how they grew away from what they did with the bands they were in, I don't see that with Dave Gilmore. It's more of an extrapolation of that. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to say, no, he doesn't serve that because everybody's got their choice in this. But that would be my argument against Gilmore being in there by himself. Well, I think to me that has more to do with, with the particular sound. Uh, and, and he has. I well, mean, well, we just spent all this time talking it, about how important the sound was. It's and now it's not. We can't have it both ways. Well, no, and I'm not. What I'm saying is, is as his work, as he's gotten older, and, and I look at something like a a, a song. Or I'd say one song that would be definitive to me would be "Raise My Rent" um, off the first solo album. Um, write that down. <laughs> we're, trying, we're trying to keep note of this, so. But. The, the thing is, as he has gotten older and as his band has changed and the musicians he's played with, his sounds become more expansive. Now it doesn't sound like he sounds nothing like a Floyd album to me. Whereas I agree, the first uh, the first solo album sounds like an extension of stuff. And, and in some cases, I think it's an improved on situation the stuff that Rob, Roger had a hand in. But I think he's putting out albums that nobody listens to. Well, his last two of... Uh, I'd have to look it up, but his last two were, uh, I know it sold over 400,000 units. I mean, it that may have. I don't rattle see, that lock. Uh, I don't see them being, but I don't see him having that kind of, of success with, especially, let's face it, he's got a built-in audience. He's not building any new audiences. John Lennon has fans that were not Beatles fans. But okay. a lot of them do not, uh, on virtue of the, the fact that Beatles being, the Beatles are kind of a category all Yeah, they are. They are. But... Joe Walsh. Wait a minute. Did you have something, Jim? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, well, two points I want to make. It's hard to separate. Uh, it's hard to hold Gilmore accountable for separating his sound when the third version of Pink Floyd had him as the front guy. Yeah. Yeah. That gets to be kind of difficult. So I'm not going to try to hold him to that standard. And I'd like to wholeheartedly support Gilmore going in solo if only to piss off Roger Waters. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> talk about that though Joe Walsh is a good example Joe Walsh I think Joe Walsh belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so do I as a solo artist and for his work with James Gang James Gang whereas he's in there only because he's with the Eagles who he had a separate career from the Eagles and I disagree with that entirely because if you ask me his solo career was if you look at the mid to was late seventies, agreeing with? I'm not sure. No, what I'm saying is I agree with that wholeheartedly okay. that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Oh, he had a solo career that was by any margin of or measurement yardstick, whatever you want to call it, successful. I mean, you couldn't avoid a Joe Walsh song in the late seventies, early eighties on the radio. It You're was right. there. You're right, and that's—I right. uh, mean—that's a pretty strong I, statement. But that was also true of, of Don Henley, and I don't know if Don Henley needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall. Of Fame I don't know that. I, I don't no, personally. I don't, I don't like him, but and, and here's my thing: Don Henley basically as a solo album. What have you got? Uh, Boys of Summer. Well, Building the Perfect Beast, and uh, yeah, what was the end of Innocence? Was that the, uh, end, the end of Dirty Innocence? Laundry? Dirty Laundry. Laundry. The fact I know I mean, these enough, really enough. bothers me. But well, okay. that's what I'm saying is that is that there's a lot of artists where. You know, building off of the success they had in a band, they released a couple albums that sold pretty well. But to me, it's like there. To me, I only think they deserve to be in there solo if they're already in there for a band. If you could honestly say, if they'd never been in that band, this solo music is is 
so worthwhile they still would have been in here. Yeah. Which I think is true of the Beatles, but isn't true of uh, of Don Henley. Because if the Eagles didn't exist, Don Henley wouldn't have ever... His solo music by itself is unremarkable, even if it was popular. See, I, I will tell you this. I think Ron Wood belongs in his own category. Because he's an amazing instrumentalist, and, and for what he did. But, and Gilmore, like I say, that's your choice. I wouldn't vote for him, but I certainly think there are worse people that could be put in there than, than there are, Dave Gilmore. There are worse people in there now. There are worse people in there that were put in this year. Right. But Before we run too far, I feel this. you're going to get a chance to do this again with my second pick. So let's just save something for okay, that. Okay, that's fine. Too. That's fine. We, um, we pre, uh, preemptively think it sucks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can live with that. My, uh, my, my choice for, for number four on the list is Gil Scott Heron, who basically invented rap music in a, in a way he, he the revolution will not be televised is his most famous song that is the rumble of hip hop okay it was this 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 bedrock song that sort of paved the way for Grandmaster Flash and later Public Enemy uh, some of the more you know the conscious rappers and stuff but he also had a, a pretty nice body of work outside that one song um, and anybody who's not familiar with him, he was basically a poet who read his poets poems over instrumental uh, instrumental backing, live instrumental backing. Obviously, there wasn't the kind of sampling technology they have they have now. And uh, it was it was just a totally different sound for the time. And uh, the last poets were the other ones that are usually cited as being one of those hip hop fathers. But Gil Scott was putting something in there that was so it was so dangerous. To a middle class white America. In fact, I'm not. I guess you have to say the revolution will not be televised as the elemental track for Gil Scott. I Hill. hope that you you say Whitey on the Moon. Whitey on the Moon was exactly what I was thinking. Whitey on the Moon was was recently heavily featured in an episode of uh, HBO's Lovecraft Country. Yes, I saw that. Uh, and I, saw and that. I watched it and was just like, you know what? This hits as hard today and maybe harder after George Floyd at all. And for, our, for our time, you know what? Listen to Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Yeah. But for the track we're choosing for this, it's going to be Whitey on the Moon. Great track. And it's only what? It's not even a minute and a half, two it's, minutes yeah. long. But... Uh, just from that opening line, a rat just bit my sister. Man, Whitey's on the moon. Whitey's on the moon. Yeah, Gil Scott's my choice, um, and I think he belongs there for his influence. It's, and it's not like he's somebody who did this and nobody paid attention to him. There was a real groundswell of of Gil Scott fans, especially in the militant black movement yeah. uh, with the, with the Panthers and, and and some of the other organizations. Yeah, and they kind got, of spread through to the hip hop artists. In the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like Run DMC, exactly. You know that that those bands owe their existence to what Gil Scott did, well, and especially that crossover, that Aerosmith, uh, Run, DMC. Run DMC. Walk this way. I mean, that does that is doesn't exist in any form without Gil Scott Heron coming before. No, it does. You're right. It is. It is. Well, you remember for a while there was that that they had a lot of those. Uh, uh, Anthrax and Public Enemy. Right. Uh, you had that Judgment Night soundtrack, which had like Biohazard and Onyx collaborating stuff like that. Gil Scott was doing this then, you know. Right. This was this was something he was doing at the time, and uh, I, it's it, it's something that if you go back and listen to, it, it sounds strangely vibrant today, especially the way it resonates 
with some of the stuff that we've been going through. And I think you could you could draw a, a straight line with no curves between Gil Scott here and and uh, uh, like Vernon Reed uh, Living Color, right? I mean. To me, there's so much that comes out. That's of an it. interesting analogy, and I'm really pissed off I didn't choose Living <laughs> Color. Now I just thought of it when we wow. were talking about Gil Scott Aaron. So, all right, we so we got our top uh, or our five and four picks. Number three, uh, Reverend Jim. Ben Lindsay. Yeah. Yeah. Fourteen year old me just threw his hand up in the air. Okay, and, and Jeff. God, Jailbreak is such a Jailbreak is such a good album too, and there's not. that biography that I picked up years ago the Phil Lennon biography one of the things I loved about that book was it kind of went remember his, he had a couple of solo albums that were great and and nobody picked up on them and they were different than Thin Lizzy and we're talking about Thin Lizzy not Phil Lennon I understand that and part of the, the whole concept of Thin Lizzy was that sonic wallop that the band popped that live record Live and Dangerous it was it was one of the most underrated live albums I've ever yeah, heard it's one in my of the life. Best live albums, of it, it, and and some of the even right down to doing Bob Seger covers, you know, uh, doing Rosalie and stuff like that. Man, it, it was it's great. If you haven't put Thin Lizzy, you, you, you haven't done much listening there. I just recommend you go out and get Dedication, and there you go. There's your broad cross sampling. Yeah, it's comprehensive and it'll tell you all you need to know. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really surprised that was not on our list of, that we didn't agree on it. And I only think it's because there were so many that we, we, we had. But I, I don't think anybody's going to argue with Thin Lizzy as being nope. on there. And and uh, I never had a chance to see him live. Anybody here see him live? I heard they put on a, no. an incredible show. All right. They're still touring, aren't they, Jim? Uh, they've gone on to the, what is the black whatever thing. Okay. Successful. And if you want to hear the song, if you want to hear the song, don't 
Cowboy song. Cowboy song. Roll me over, baby. You know what? You could choose any one of those three, though, and be perfectly legit, okay? You really could. But I'm like you. Cowboy song is the one I go back to. But I will tell you this. Well, that's what I was going to say. I can think, I can tell you right now that The Boys Are Back in Town is one of a handful of songs that I have never turned off the radio if I heard it. It, it, it will stay on there until the last note. They're still down. the quintessential version of Whiskey in the Jar, man. Yeah, they really are. That's it. That's, that, that, see, that could have gone. Yeah. And even even some of their weirder cuts like Dancing in the Moonlight. Yeah. You know, it's it's just out it's there. Got right? a, but it's got a good, good, great rhythm, man. I mean, it's Well, you can't top that. What what song was played? My wife and I walked down the stage wearing a whiskey in the jar. Absolutely wonderful. You know what? I've always said that uh, your wife was too good for you, but that may prove it right there, buddy. Okay, that's that's a that's a great cut to to play. There's there's not a there's not a lot of bad Thin Lizzy songs either. No, no, I listen to many times. There's there's like the unformed, unfinished Thin Lizzy. Basically, guys, you're you're listening to four Thin Lizzy fanboys slobbering all over them, and we don't care. We, we we're still there for it, no problem. I th- uh, excellent choice, and you're going with the cowboy song. Yeah, all day. Do you Golden Smog's cur- cover of that? Golden Smog or uh, or the, yes. the Super Suckers did a good version too, but that that they're go ahead. I'm like you. I'm no Billy Corgan fan, but it wasn't bad. <laughs> but but again, that's a great song. That's a great yeah, song. <laughs> All right, Jeffrey, you're up. Number three. Number three. I am going to go with the Garden of Sound. Okay, Sound, Sound Garden. Makes some choice. Yep. Uh, by virtue of the fact, that to me, uh, and, and this was a big thing when I was in my mid twenties. You know, a lot of Seattle sound had come out, as it was called, and everything else. But and and, and I listened to a good bit of it, uh, and. You know, I, I mean, there were some that just didn't didn't quite get over the top with these screaming trees, things like that, that I enjoyed. But to me, the musicianship, not to mention the maturing songwriting by Super Unknown, really comes with Soundgarden. This is where it really, it, to me, it married itself. Uh, it, what would be the the term grunge that people used more ways than one on the, you know, some of the the primitive playing styles and stuff like that. But Garden really was able to tie. Success, you know, the as the Hall of Fame, I'm sure, you know, these multi-platinum albums mean something. But they tied a lot of musicianship to this, too. Oh, it... I can still listen to Matt Cameron and Kim Thale today, no matter where they pop up next. The chops of a prog band, but the looseness of a blues band. Yeah. Chris Cornell was a blues man. That, that, that used to be kind of our rallying cry when we'd have our, our afternoon... Grop sessions, the 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 band itself was 
Can I tell my favorite Soundgarden story? Sure. I have a friend named Bill Hackler. Bill Hackler and I played in a band together for quite a few years called Doc Bombay. And we played at this little club north of Red Bank. It used to be called Hawkeyes. Jeff is now going, oh, God, I remember Hawkeyes. And we were playing one night, and the guitar player broke a string. And uh, to, to cover up while he was doing it, Bill, the keyboard player, played Desperado and Jeff the Drummer Saint. A song I think we can all agree is yeah. no place near any kind of taste whatsoever. It fit um, Hawkeyes, though. It did. Well, somebody loved it so much, they had to do it again. Oh, yeah. They had to do it again before the last set. Well, the next night I got there, this is when band played two nights a week, four to six hours. Not like now when band show up and play an hour and a half and consider it a hard night's work. I got to the to this, this club and, and I, I hear this sound. And I go over and Bill is sitting, he had this little brown Toyota truck. He's sitting in this little Toyota truck. And the, the truck is shaking. And I'm listening and it's outshined by Soundgarden. Oh, God. And Bill's sitting there looking straight ahead, not not paying attention to anything else. And I go over to him and I, I rap on the window. And he doesn't even look at me. He just rolls the window down, turns it down, then looks at me and says, I'm trying to get the taste of Desperado out of my mouth. <laughs> rolls the window back up, turns the volume up, and I left him there with Outshine playing at top volume. And, and Which is... Not exactly a song, it, Well, which goes for most of Bad Motorfinger. It wasn't meant to be played at five on your volume or 50, as the case may be, depending no. on your tuner. And that, that kind of leads me to the uh, picking a song there is difficult for me because what I want with that is not necessarily something you'd hear on the radio, but as much as... Uh, just something that that exemplified the absolute primal level on which they played, and it, I, I kind of narrowed it down to two between Slates, Bulldozers, and Like Suicide, and I got to go with Like Suicide because that's just seven minutes of Matt Cameron, Kim Thale cut loose, and Chris Cornell destroying his vocal cords for this entire recording that, session. That band had no weak links. No, they didn't. None, none at all. There's nothing none there that doesn't work. All right, X. I've, it's it's really funny. Some of the stuff I've noticed. I was looking at at when we were going over our stuff. A lot of this stuff, and I've made this this session for prog rock, which I'm not a fan of, and heavy metal, have both gotten kind of the short shrift from the hall, um, including. You know, it took them forever to put Deep Purple in there. Oh yeah, who kind of midwife both, if you think about it, which. And and uh, was one of the greater injustices ever, right there. Oh, it was. Well, it took them years to put Sabbath in. Yeah. It took them years to put Leonard Skinner. Both in. of which were were such yeah. a formative, you know, influence on everything that would come for the next fifteen years in music. Spe- speaking of heavy metal, my third choice. Well, here, let me let me do my third before we get to yours. Did you want? To, did I miss you? Yeah, that's all. Right. I'm sorry. I apologize, man. I, no, I you know. We, we, we get in the conversation. Matt, do your third. I usually try to do it that way. I'm sorry. What is, my, is my third is uh, Johnny Rivers. That's right. You did, uh, you did not and, say that. And Johnny Rivers, I think, you know, he, 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 was, he had a lot of early hits. Now, one of the things that's a knock against him uh, is a lot of his hits are covers of other artists. Yeah. Uh, so, so was Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. So was Jerry Lee Lewis. Elvis. Elvis didn't write a lot of music. Yeah. So. 
Um, but to me, Johnny Rivers is just, you know, it's it's a specific sound, and it takes, I guess, a New York boy, you know, filtered through a living in Baton Rouge, moved out <laughs> to Los Angeles to get the Johnny Rivers sound. But but the, the songs that he did at uh, the, the Whiskey A Go-Go stuff, where he was essentially the house band, uh, you know, it's just, that's the sound of an era. House band at the hippest place in, in, in L.A. LA well, I was about to say, and we know how that house band would change in about five or six years, too. Right, how much yeah. that would really get him. Yeah, I mean, but but to me, that it's it's in the same way that Elvis kind of made, uh, you know, some of what um, guys like Little Richard or uh, or uh, Chuck Berry, any, any of those guys were doing kind of palatable to a wide audience. Uh, Johnny Rivers kind of did the same thing a little bit later. But Johnny Rivers did not seem it did not seem put on them. He he really dug what he was doing. No, I think he was. That's part of it. I think I think that's part of it. Is it wasn't a calculated move for him. Right. He, he was, was no Bobby Darren. No, no, he was digging it. You know, yeah. and that version of uh, Rock and Pneumonia he did, which will be by, my my song. Is, is that yours? Yeah. Originally by Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns. Right. But. His version tears it up. Oh, yeah. I, it rocks from beginning to and, end. And the other thing that he did was that his is kind of the earliest rock to really start using the L.A. session guys. Yeah. I mean, if you think of a... Of a the like, Wrecking Crew. Right. The Wrecking Crew. Rock and Pneumonia is uh, Keltner on drums. Uh, it's uh, Dean Parks' first yep. gold record. I did not uh, know that. Dean Parks' Yeah, Dean Parks I did plays not the know guitar that. solo on uh, Rock and Pneumonia. One of my favorite session guys. Um, you know, and and but it's not just that he had a ton of great big hits, Maybelline and Memphis. He did. He, um, he, Summer Rain. Uh, you know, Chapel of Love. Oh, I mean, he, he had a just a, an awful lot of of top ten hits. Uh, you know, well, anything using the crew couldn't. It, you knew musically was going to be strong and tight. Right. right. Well, I've seen videos of him at as, as a house band there. And he, he was he was ripping it, man. He was stomping. Oh yeah, the the band was, and I don't think that was the session guys. I think it was just his band. Yeah, I think. But they were stomping. I mean, right. they were just tearing that up. And the, you know, I mean, and, and it, like we said, he, he did a lot of covers, but Rock and Pneumonia, which technically is a cover, like it was a cover from 1957 or so, and he recorded it in '72. So it's not as if he was. You know, taking a contemporary song and just spinning it back but out. But an there. artist doesn't have to be a great songwriter to be a great artist. Sure. Yeah. It, like I said, Jerry Lewis, Elvis Presley. Right, Frank, interpreting Frank songs. fucking Sinatra. <laughs> right. Um, even guys like Miles. Miles? Yeah. He, he, he pulled out some sketches and stuff. Right. But, but he was... Of Spain. Ah. Uh, but, but he, I mean... Well, in context, though, man, if you think George Harrison did a lot, he'd cover some of these rare chestnuts, yep. too, man. Oh, sure. And, and, and really make them his own. Yeah. It's the same case here. Well, I've always contended one of the marks of a great band as opposed to a great artist with a backing band is how they handle covers. Sure. And you look at, at bands, some of them we've talked to about, tonight. we talked about the Black Crows earlier. They're not on our list, but we all like them. Uh, they're a great cover band. Oh, sure. Um, the band. Uh, the Stones make great covers. Well, I'll tell you what, those bands who can't just, do their own, who can only do their own stuff, are not bands I'm really interested in. You know, I don't need that that sort of solipsistic kind of viewpoint. You right. know, I don't need it. On the other end, you just summed up Chuck Berry and his 
shit live performances right there. That's a good point. Great song, right? Anybody can pay 250 bucks for So I've got a musician buddy who played with uh, Chuck Berry in Atlanta and said that he came on and it, it did just like you, you would think. He says, watch my foot. Yep. And, and the, the weird thing was he played everything in B flat, which, okay, sorry for the muso talk, but... That's a weird key that's to play in, unless that's you're a keyboardist. Johnny be good. And, and and well, the thing is, there's there's talk that Chuck got a lot of that stuff from Johnny P. Johnson, his guitar player, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, his piano player. We're getting way off track. I'm sorry, yeah, but that's, that's the kind of thing that Johnny Rivers will kind of make you think about. I mean, he yeah. he took songs that really may have been great and breathed a different life into them. Right. He did. He did. I'm sorry, man. I I got my order mixed up. That's I apologize. Right. I apologize. And you were my ride here tonight, too, man. That was very ungrateful of me. I'm sorry. No problem. <laughs> um, my third choice is, uh, and I'm, I'm going back to my teen years on this one, uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Right. Is the, uh, it was that nobody rocked harder, nobody rocked smarter, nobody had the, the breadth of, of, sonic, of a sonic palette that they did. I mean, they could pull off a lot of different stuff. <laughs> I think that Blue Oyster Cult suffers a little bit from not being able to be pigeonholed more I, I agree. I agree. Because you can't just say, it's not like Yes, which is a great prog rock band, but you can point to them and say, yeah, that's a prog rock band. Well, if, if you remember, those early, the, the punk bands in New York in the 70s, which is more of a... Punk later became kind of morphed into something else, but it was more of an art scene kind of thing. Right. They embraced Blue Oyster Cult. Sure. Uh, in fact, Patty Smith sang on, she dated Alan Lanier, but she, she sang on uh, Secret Treaties. Um, That's because Buck Dharma makes a good mascot. Well, Buck Dharma is one of those underrated guitar gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw Blue Oyster Cult at Memorial Auditorium, and it, it had a seminal influence on me. Because it was so loud, and, and they didn't stop from beginning to end. And there was no falseness in the band. And they went they went off on some weird tangents. They did a lot of this kind of science fiction shit, you know? They were, they were playing all these these almost little rock operas and, and digging into, I mean, Michael Moorcock did yeah. some stuff with them. And I'm not a big Which fantasy. Volumes. Well, yeah, it does. I'm, I'm not I a love Moorcock. I'm not a big fantasy science fiction guy. In fact, I tend to... He just said, I love more cock. I sure did. And and, and now I'm feeling bad about myself. You know what? You be you, man. We we got your back. If you want more cock, we're there. I'm just just glad to be here, guys. It's a safe space for you and your desires. That's right, buddy. We're here for you. But uh, they're a band that I think is, is... And they were kind of a critic's darling early on. But they sort of... They kind they of lost that welcome out by mirrors. <laughs> yeah, by mirrors they did. Yeah. But they've also, if you think, they have consistently put out decent albums over the past 30, 40 years, even though they were only being sold to like, you know, they're selling maybe 70,000, 80,000, but they're, they're the same quality they were. Shooting Sharks is not one of, of I okay. can't remember the album that was on, but uh, that was a horrible well, song. Well, rather than a song it, 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 on this one, I, I'm going to ask you album. On that one, it, because to me, you know, you can point to those three or four uh, BOC sing, singles, but for me, it, it goes to albums. You know, for no, them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cho- now if I had to choose an album, it probably would be Secret Treaty simply what because it? there's so much there. Okay, uh, Tyranny and Mutilation is pretty. Reputation is good, good record. You know, they had like 
what, four live albums, too, all of which were... But the song I'm going to choose is not one of their hits. Or not one well, of their that's hits. easy to do. <laughs> Uh, the song I'm going to choose is a song that came a little bit later called Joan Crawford Has Risen from the Grave. Which is, I remember seeing the video on Night Flight when I was a kid and it creeped yes. me. Do what, bud? Hell yes. Yeah, it, it's a great song. It's got this kind of cinematic feel to it. The video scared the shit out of me for some reason. and And just the whole imagery of it Eric Bloom sings his ass off on it. Uh, it it's just a it's just a, a wonderful song. That's my pick. Uh, I was you know, expecting something like Baby Ice Dog. Or no, I almost, went with, almost went with Seven Screaming Dizbusters. Yeah, there you it's, go. That's it's a personal favorite. Seven bags of flaming but, shit. But I tell you what, man, Joan Crawford Religion for the Risen from the Grave is just oh, a it's it's a unique God. song. All right, we're up to number two, and let's see if I can get it in the right order this time. I'm sorry, Reverend Jim. What is it? Black flag. Period. I like period. I like exclamation. Um, I like punctuation today. And Black Flag, I mean, there's the documentary out there about the four-bar logo tattoo. Yeah. And how many different people have it and what it means to them. And, I mean, you know, I think my introduction probably was uh, Decline Western Civilization. You know, hey, it's Black Flag. And then Greg Kent just goes off. I think a lot of people had that introduction. I agree. That's... Let me ask you something. Okay. Just, just out of curiosity, because there's another band that you and I are both big fans of, and I'm sort of surprised you didn't pick the Dead Kennedys instead of Black Flag. Why, why is that? Uh, I think Black Flag was stronger, longer. Okay, fair enough. Longer, yes, but at their peak, I, I, I like DK just as much. I'm just saying, I, I, yeah. think I, I consistent. If you want to set a threshold that say 75% of maximum capacity, I think Black Flag was there longer than a DK's work. Uh, I, 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 my, my brother's a huge fan of Frank and Christ. To me, it wears thin after about half the side. Uh, yeah, initial impact, there's not, I don't know if there's anything that hits any harder than fresh fruit for white vegetables. No, no, I agree. Cover artwork, to the font they use for the band name, to everything. It just is like a, it's like a sledge between the eyes. We all walk around like stunned cattle. And, uh, but, you know, then again, uh, Black Flag recorded stuff that I consider similar with three different lead singers uh, and three different sounds. Yeah, they kind of they kind of were a dynasty in that regard. They, they kind of jumped lineups and still remained... Uh, as as powerful as they were in the get go, uh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I, go ahead. It became uh, kind of a uh, I don't know, you know, a little hanging fruit thing. Let's make fun of Henry Rollins for spoken word stuff. And all I can say is, if you want to hear a lot about, we're talking about Ark and Dangerous with Ben Lizzie. You want a lot of Dangerous. If you want to hear a, a live album, put in Who's Got the Ten and a Half by Black Flag. And let it just rip. Well, version of my war, slip it in, Louie <clears throat> uh, Louie. I mean, it's just off the chain. Black Flag had a really broader influence too than Dead Kennedys did. That they, 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 they. Yeah, the, the, I'm sorry. I didn't mean. To, I want to make a point too. If we're considering influence, uh, you know, Rollins just refused to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, SST 
was probably, uh, I don't know, probably still the best-known independent record label. Uh, if you just had to get, make somebody name one, of course, record labels are carrying up sleep now, but uh, for a long time, that was the first one that you could get out of people's mouths. Um, I, you know, uh, they, they've had a, uh, they, they, I don't know, there's people still talking about them. There's kids still buying the records. There's people still buying the CDs, the T-shirts, whatever. Uh, and it, they deserve all of it. This isn't some kind of uh, astroturf bullshit. Well, and who, ha- who, hey, Jim? I've got the flyer from them playing a chip and hanging down over my friggin' washing machine. That, was that the nuke? Yeah. Okay, that's why I was, I thought they played at the nucleus. And who hasn't, uh, who hasn't, uh, Rollins wound up guesting in, you know, for a couple of songs? I mean, good God, the bands are, there's gotta be more than, more than, you know, three or four dozen of them. You know, for, 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 for Hank's propensity, for thinking every sound out of his mouth is a nugget from the gods that has to be distributed somehow, he does. He's more positive than not. I think he he he, he is a, an influence that that deserves his 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 podium. So I, I don't have a problem with Rollins. If you've never heard him talk about uh, live, if you've never heard live from the box, which was the first one man show he put together after. Joe Cole, his roommate and friend, was shot to death. Yes, yes. Uh, if you haven't heard anything. I, I, because it's as heartfelt in anything as you will ever, ever hear. It, it is incredibly, it's, it's, it's the blues in its purest form, just like we were talking about Soundgarden. I mean, it, it, he, I, I've got nothing, a lot, he's kind of become a cartoon, but, uh, but it doesn't, it, go ahead. There was one line of his writing, poetry, whatever you want to call it, one time that, uh, that I thought was great because he talked about it being blues, and he is, and people don't get that. But he put a line in there one time at the end of one of them that was something along the lines of, uh, don't come around the 213 area code. It's all blues here. Yeah. And I thought that was just fantastic. Just, it, it, it's hard to summarize. Uh, if you want to tell somebody something is fucked, something is screwed up, there's no better way than just to say it's all blues here. That's that's. I, I, you know, it's funny. You, you you've kind of encouraged me to go back and listen to some of the old Black Flag stuff, which I haven't listened to in a while, and I really liked. I've always enjoyed it. Um, I think that's a good choice. I think they belong in there as well. I understand the whole. I agree. I don't disagree or agree with you necessarily on the Dead Kennedys. I think you could make an argument for either one of them. But uh, well, if we're going to talk about punk, and I'm as anglophile as anybody on a great section of my music taste, but dear God, we can't ignore it. You know, pretend that it's what the Ramones over here. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's why. That's why I say their their influence is far more immense than people really think it is. It, it, it it's it's really got. They've got a lot of of, of uh, a reach in what they did, so I, I thought that was a hell of a choice. And and punk is very underrepresented in the hall as much as heavy metal or prop. It's the rock and roll equivalent of baseball's baseball hall of fame's recency bias. Yes, it is. It is good. Then maybe someday somebody can explain why neither television or a gang of four are in there. Jesus, man! Don't get me started. On I know. <laughs> 
Well, I would not. You know what? Marquee Moon is one of my favorite albums of all time, but I would not vote for television. Oh, I, based I, that, on that album. That's your no. Richard Lloyd bias. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, I just, I, and I'm not, again, I don't think they had the, and I, you know, I got to tell you, I saw them a few years ago. Did you? Uh, Jack and I went, and I, I was. Tom could still stand up? It's an amazing show. Yeah, we yeah. Richard was, Lloyd was obviously not playing with him, but it, it was it was a great show. Doesn't Richard live in Chattanooga? He days? did. I don't. I think he's moved out again. Oh. He lived in uh, Wildwood. I think it was. Yeah. Close um, to the sanitarium. Do what? Close to the sanitarium. Down Richard lives on a different plane than the rest of us. All right, uh, we got we got uh, Black Flag in the books. Matt, what was the I song? remembered this time. Oh yeah, what was your emblematic song, Jim? Emblematic song. Uh, If you had any sense of humor at all, you'd. If you had any sense of humor at all, you'd say institutionalized. Drinking drop? Okay. The Romans version, of, at least the most popular version of flag, the one that people reference the most, is is the Rollins era thing. And Rollins didn't necessarily come up with the straight edge thing, but his whole thing was like, you know, why do stuff to punish yourself? Why do stuff in a world that treats you like dog food, that makes you weaker, more screwed up, less able to do what you want to do? And, uh, you know, drink, drink, drive, kill. That's a pretty serious opening lyric. Yeah. I like beats cruising and boozing. <laughs> Sorry. Bad Hagar reference. It's almost an Olympic sport. I do <laughs> have to stand up for the fact that once upon a time we weren't ready to execute you on the side of the road for having a beer at lunch. <laughs> yeah. All right, Matthew. Uh, my number two uh, is going to be Three Dog Night. Um, which could go under the same kind of, you know, uh, thing as we said about Johnny Rivers. They, they didn't write a lot of their music, but they popularized the hell out of uh, some great songs by other people. They pretty much made ABC Records uh, at the time that they were, you know, one of the kind of uh, most prominent rock and roll acts. Uh, you know, I mean, not for nothing, but if you... If you you know, and, and we'll get to kind of uh, the song. But if you just look at a list of their songs, you've got stuff like Joy to the World, Never Been to Spain, Mama Told Me Not to Come, Shambhala, Old Fashioned Love Song, Eli's Coming. I mean, they had some killer tracks that kind of everybody knows. Uh, and, and yeah, they may not be everybody's favorite band. They're not my favorite band by a long shot. But they are one of the preeminent rock and roll, you know, groups of their era. Um, they can headline, you know, festivals today, uh, you know, in the, the same way that a lot of the bands that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame can't. You know, they had a, a they had three lead singers, basically three vocalists, but there is a live album that came out. I don't think it was live at the Forum, but it was a double album set that I got through the RCA Record Club Six records for a dime. And uh, the band was cooking. The band, and it was a band. It wasn't just three guys with a roving, right. uh, you know, group of, of musicians who would sit in and play with it. It was a legitimate band. And they were on fire. It was, it was, and it, it, you know, they were, 
They were tight when they had to be. They were loose when they had to be. They could let it fly off the rails a little bit. Just just a one of those. They were from Los Angeles, I believe, weren't they? Or where they were based out of? I think, yeah, they were. They were based, based out, out of there. Um, the, and you can't argue with that string of hits they had in the early seventies. I mean, you can say, well, they didn't write them, but. Mama told me not to come. Doesn't sound like that when Randy Newman does right. it. Right, and, and, and we love Randy Newman. We oh, talked about Randy Newman on the way over here, but, sure. but they turned that song into something almost, almost creepy. You know, yeah. it, it was it was just. Well, it's as, funny that, that with rock and roll, so much emphasis can be put on writing the songs of being you know the singer songwriter or the songwriter being in the band, as opposed to just interpreting it. Which, if we were doing a podcast about jazz, wouldn't even be part of the conversation. Right. You know, there are there are yeah. you know avenues of music in which we recognize that the performance can be great, even if you didn't write the song. It can be exemplary. I mean, no one looks at uh, Glenn Gould and says, "Well, he didn't write those Bach concertos." Right? No, rock I mean, and roll is a performance art, though, man. Right? It is. It is. It's, it's but to me, the Three Dog Night. You know, these guys were were consummate performers who you know and. and it's one of those things where the rising tide lifts all ships for me because these guys were ABC's kind of preeminent act. They started hiring songwriters, fledgling songwriters from all over the country to move to Los Angeles and write songs predominantly for Three Dog Night, uh, but also for other artists that were on ABC like The Grassroots and bands like that. One of those it was a Motown operation. Right. But one of those songwriting groups that were hired to move to LA and write songs for Three Dog Night uh, was uh, uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. So in some ways, I don't get Steely Dan without Three Dog Night. That's true. Anybody that wants can get into a Hall of Fame if they'll give me a little Steely Dan in my life. Matt's really into the Dan. I don't know if anybody noticed that. Slightly. But, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. They, now, and, and I, I, look no further than his jacket right now. Yeah. And <laughs> Steely Dan actually wasn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a number of years. No, they were there. not. And, and they very publicly gave the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a lot of shit including doing things like uh, saying they were going to send them checks for $300,000, and then when that failed, saying they were going to send them uh, the equivalent in uh, candies and meats of $300,000, just really giving them an awful lot of shit, which they they very much deserved. They they bit the hand that fed them, and it fed them again. (laughs) It did. Just out of curiosity, you're a three-dog night guy. Uh, Corey, Chuck, or Danny? Which which of your vocalists is your favorite? Man? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't think any of those guys were really exceptionally great <laughs> singers. But they, the a they did they 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 were no Danko Manuel and Levon Helm. Sure, but they did have a, a very unique vocal sound with, right. with themselves. But and, I think that and they could all put the the song across. Yeah, that's they. the thing that they that they did really well, which was understanding that you don't have it doesn't have to sound like the best you don't have to sound like the best singer ever Uh to be convincing in rock and roll you just got to get the point across yeah i mean there's something about the feeling of the song and conveying it in a way that's that's real and they did that really well they did they did um i'm a little surprised they haven't even been nominated to be honest with you i really am i think it's it's one of those things that there's just bands that that they have a sweet spot of when they might have gotten in and once that's passed um, there's no push for it. New York Dolls isn't in for that very reason, I think. You know, it's a band that should be there. I mean, if we're talking about their influence and what they could be and, you know, what they meant to people that came after them. Um, but I think that there's a sweet spot of, like, when you when you can first be nominated 
uh, you've got a year or two to really look good. And then after that, if you didn't get in, it takes, you know, another decade of people being pissed that you got passed over, over and over again. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of has to perpetuate its own inertia. Yeah. Way. So I think it's one of those bands that eventually like they'll run out of, you know, excuses uh, mid 80s level bands that they can be like oh yeah these guys should definitely be in there and they'll come back to them god does that mean the outfield's going to go in eventually possibly and I'll say uh, I don't hear anybody clamoring for that one since it came up I'll say mama told me not to come would be my, my track to listen now, to I'm a little surprised at that I figured you'd go for the obvious but uh, you know and I, I, I think about it but I really like their cover of mama told me I do too I think it's, it's I think I think it was their first hit wasn't it I believe it was their first hit it probably was yeah and it was also Randy Newman's I think first hit probably was so, probably was there you go Jeffrey well before I start I would like to say that Matt is wearing the only Steely Dan emblazoned piece of clothing I've ever seen in my life. And it actually works. So, there we go. For me, number two, this this one probably goes more to personal. So, if anybody wants to pick it apart, they're welcome to this do so. This one sucks. But thank you. But neither the band this guy was in, nor he himself were in. And I'm going with Robin Trower there. I don't have an argument with that. That one doesn't suck as much as I thought it would. No, I... You're really lacking in the suck. I put yeah. it this way: I would choose Robin Trower above Dave Gore, Dave Gilmore. I, I can, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I can make the argument. Number one, Procol Harum's not in, and I can think of there are less deserving musicians in the Hall of Fame than there in, are in bands. But when you start Harum. putting Procol Harum in there, you start. It, we, we to me, it shouldn't be the Hall of Very Good. You know, no, that'd be your eye heat. Trow, tra- don't you ever knock the heat. No, I'm sorry, man. Um, Trower, though, had first of all, Trower had a series of albums in the 70s that were. Yeah, you go from twice removed from yesterday, Bridge of Size, and the rest of them. And these were, it, to me, they were influential on a lot of musicians yeah, that came afterwards. I mean, it, guys like uh, e. Vernon Reed and. John Butcher Axis both talked about the influence he had on their play. Bridge of size, man. I I think I've pulled every major vice I could to that album at one point. Every, you know, it's it's just oh and, and okay, let's give some credit where it's due to that album too. Bill Lorden. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, I mean not Bill Lorden, I'm sorry, uh James Dewar. Dewar on um, vocals, yeah. His vocals is just I mean, he's an amazing singer, and he never got his credit. And he and never Trower did. played off of each other as well as Page and Plant did. Yeah, it was, they it really was, did. It was a counterpoint. They uh, really with both did them with, with his guitar and his voice. Not to mention, and as I look right over there in that corner, one of the most underrated. Uh, but it, it, and we talked about live albums, and that one wasn't one. But Robin Trower Live is just one of those albums that that it it it, it was my introduction. And and for about two or three other folks I know who are big fans, same way. That was that was where we really got that '75 release of uh, Robin Trower Live. I was like, whoa, I'm blown away by this play. So I just think his uh, his career, he who he's influenced, and where he's you know where he still is. You, you know, he kind of got knocked for being a Hendrix ripoff, and I just I never saw it as that. Yeah, I, I mean, know. they they both had that real kind of psychedelic. Tone, they, but his was a completely different kind of play. It was, yeah, his, the playing was different. It was more R and B and blues. Yeah. And, and he was that? a blues guy, but his was more of an R and B sound. Well, Robin, was. if you listen to a lot of, especially uh, uh, some of those things off like Twin Cities and Twice Removed Yesterday, and even on to uh, Victims of the Fury, a lot of that stuff swings. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got a lot of rhythm to it. And, it you is. know, well, you probably think Reg has a tour for a lot of that, too, and... But it, it I... Now I wouldn't knock that choice at all. I, I think it's a good underrated person who belongs in there. Uh, oh, that's my number two. My number two. And as far as songs go. Oh, that's right. What we got? Uh, I'm actually going to step away uh, a little bit away from, you know, say Bridge of Size, stuff like that, and go with uh, Daydream. That one, it really draws choice. that one out, and, and you kind of get to see what the whole thing's about there. You saw him when he played here a couple of times. Yeah, didn't I've you? seen him. Yeah, I've seen him twice. Uh, he got a couple of friends who've seen him four or five times. He uh, the last time he played here was at Track Twenty Nine. There might have been somewhere in the neighborhood of about two hundred of us in there, mm-hmm. but it, it was a hell of a show. It was well worth it. Um, I I I saw him at the uh, what is it? The Walker. Yeah, auditorium above yeah. Memorial Tommy, and it was it, it was him basically doing his his blues thing. It That's what he does. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's no frills, nothing. nothing no. It's just the musicians up there. Oh man, Bam's great too. Yeah, they Bam's are. Great. They're tight. Um, They're my, also fifty years younger. Than speaking of blues, I'm gonna my I kind of flip my one and two after we move things around. Uh, my choice for the second is what I think is the greatest blues band going for the last. 35 years and they're not a blues band uh, Los Lobos because they kind of traffic in all kinds of stuff yeah they do gut bucket rock and roll they're, they're big blues aficionados they do a lot of, uh, of, of Mexican style songs even dipping into mariachi style rock uh, and they've been doing it for 40 years the band has been together for a long time They've consistently been critical favorites. They've been steady sellers. Now, they've never so I don't even know if they've ever had a gold album, let alone a platinum mm-hmm. album. But they have consistently put out these great records, and they have turned into this... And when I say blues, and we've talked about the blues a lot here, not as a form, but as a pure expression, and as, as, as sort of a, a way of, of getting the point across. They do it as good as anybody. Um, Dave Hidalgo and Cesar play, Cesar, they play each, off of each other. So I think well, rhythm, rhythm section immediately when I think of those guys. It's like that's interesting because a lot of people don't. But, I do, but they I do mean, have a. It's 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 a very it's very much like Creedence. It's a no frills rhythm yeah. section, and they you, you listen to it, you don't think there's anything going on, but there's some sort of a, a lilt there, some sort of magic. They do a great version of what's going on, yeah. and they simplify it. Now again. The bass line of what's going on is kind of a holy grail for bass players. They don't do it just like that, but they they have this kind of a groove that is undeniable. And I, I, I'm i shocked they haven't, just because they've also engendered a lot of goodwill with the the rock press and the rock, rock community. But there's not an album of theirs that's horrible. Um, and... and Again, their only real hit was, I guess, I guess the La Bamba soundtrack. Technically, was, That'd probably be was their closest to a platinum. But there were there were so much more than that. And uh, and if I have to go with an emblematic track, I'm going to go with uh, probably Kiko and the Lavender Moon, uh, which is just a. They had, a, you know, the thing about about them is, the, uh, you know, they're an East LA band, mm-hmm. right? And so to me, they kind of carry on this this uh, rock and roll tradition of uh, you know Chicano rock. 
that Santana kind of is the, the at the forefront of earlier. Yes. But I think if you listen to them, you hear a lot of that uh, influence of the Abraxas era Santana sound. But but they do a thing which, which you know, like if you ever go to Austin, Texas, and, and you go hear some of the best local bands playing in, in, uh, in Austin, you're going to hear the Los Lobos sound. I mean, from bands that came out of there like Los Lonely, Los Lonely Boys, Boys is exactly who yeah. I thought of. Yeah. I mean, Los Lobos just had that that thing and are consistently good. They had a track uh, called uh, When the Circus Comes to Town, mm-hmm. which is just yeah. one of my favorite songs to play Great with song. people because it's, you know, it, it they can groove in a way that's just unique to them. And it's it's just well, so... It is. Well, that's it, what it, I'm saying about that uh, Doyle Bramhall, not junior, senior that kind of drum sound and everything else you get out of them. They get a sound that's all their own out of what they've got, and it cooks. Well, part of it is it's, it's, a, it's a Spanish rhythm. Yeah. That, that yeah, it's, the, it's the, not the, overt. It's not something that they play up as being, oh, look, this sounds Spanish. But it, it's there. It's inherent. No, it's there's a that, flamenco and... and, and, and but, but it's almost a Camuto thing that, that they do. Yeah. That's, but the thing that I, that I think I really like about them is that it isn't, it isn't just... Uh, you you don't listen to them and you think this is a Chicano band, this is a, a Hispanic sound because it's got Americana, it's got oh, roots, yeah. it's yeah. got all of these disparate elements that kind of come together in Los Lobos. And I think that for for a certain segment of rock and roll, they're as good as any band. Uh, and and I completely agree with you that they should absolutely be in the rock. Right. Simply put, their shit jumps out of the speaker, and that's all I'm asking. It does, for it does, it does, so. and it grabs you. Uh, well, I tell you what, speaking of great covers, they do a great cover of Don't Keep Me Wondering, the Almond Brothers song. Yeah. Uh, All right. Reverend Jim, what's your number one artist that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Joy Division. Joy Division. Uh-huh. Two albums, not a benefit. Uh I'm kind of sad that there's actually space between the songs because I'm sure they could have filled that up with something good. Uh, I, I don't see what the argument is with it. If you want to talk about influence, it's all over the place. If you want to talk about how good the band was, uh, if that's not evident by now, turn to your voter's card and go home. Um, I mean, there's, and it's unique. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I mean, I know Martin Hammett had some influence in the sound and everything else, but what a unique post-industrial decline period sound that Joy Division made. Just bleak, uh, brutally bleak and honest and, you know, um, real. The, and every, every single bit of what was going on with those guys came through, uh, came through the speaker. They and, they and Bauhaus, to me, were, were like the progenitors of that. that did, did, none of that happens without them. Okay. Devil's advocate here. I, I don't disagree on the influence at all. Um, and you know they're not my favorite sound, but that doesn't mean I don't think they're they're worth it. Do you think they had... I mean, they had a fairly short career. Do you think they transcended that? I mean, and of course you could say that Hendrix only had three albums, Nirvana really only had three albums. But do you think they had the, the, the kind of... Uh, the, the breadth of a career that belongs in the rock? Hall of Fame. People still buy closer. 
Yeah, I mean, there are people who are in there for one song. Okay. I'm talking about two solid albums of ass-kicking, front to back, musical ass-kicking. Uh, I don't think there's a weak track on it. If you do, that's fine. Everybody can get back wherever they want to. But I don't think there's a weak track on it. And if we're going to put in people from one freaking song, uh, then we sure as hell can put in a band for an incredible, uh, phenomenal... Two albums. Two albums. And then, you know, if you want to do the small faces, faces kind of thing that they did, uh, then you can come right in with a new one, which I can argue is just as influential, influential as anything in 2020. I, simply for the, the length of the career, I would have... I would have considered you saying New Order before Joy Division, but that's that's just you know, that's just a, a personal opinion. Um I don't I don't like Joy Division. I mean you and I have talked about this quite a bit, but it's kinda hard to argue the much like Black Flag, it's kinda hard to argue the impact they've made. Um and, and there there was a whole scene sprang from that that group. So, I, I don't have a problem. In fact, they're another one of those bands I'm a little surprised has never really gotten. I don't even think they've ever been nominated. Uh, and I, I would think they would have. Okay, excellent choice. I have no problems with that. I don't want to listen to it for myself, but I have no problems with it. Matt? Uh, my number one is Joe Cocker. What? And, and maybe there's a trend here that a lot of the people I keep saying... Yeah, they didn't write their own music. Um, but to me, you know, Joe Cocker is is one of the great voices of rock and roll. Yes. Uh, you know, there's... he I, To the point where I, I can't believe he's not already in the rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me. I mean, too. you think his, his, you know, feeling all right or uh, with a little help from my friends, those are seminal rock tracks. Uh and and I mean, what is it? Uh, um, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. That whole tour. I mean, you look at the stuff that he did with uh, Leon Russell. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's it's a rock and roll story. His his whole career. Um, and it just it's it's shocking to me that he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the Mad Dogs and Englishmen. That was really a huge. Yeah, thing yeah. It's kind of hard for people to realize now just how big it was. That was. Um, that the, it's interesting because given your first choice, which was the artist, the the musicians who didn't get right. Um, what was your second again? Uh, because uh, <laughs> you had Johnny Rivers. Was uh, Link Ray? Link Ray. Okay, Link Ray is, is the one. So Johnny Rivers and, and Three Dog Night, yeah. and then Joe Cocker. All those bands kind of intertwined. If you think about it, sure. The Wrecking Crew was involved with them. Uh, Randy Newman. Leon Russell, some of those guys were all amongst the same. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's it's, the thing is that you know it takes it takes a village to make great music, mm-hmm. and and yeah, there's the times where you're going to have a band like uh, like Led Zeppelin, where these guys will will either take songs that are old blues songs and make them new, or they'll most of the time they'll write a song, and between the three or four guys in the band, they'll they'll do all of the work to get it out there, and it'll sound like what it's supposed to sound like. But more often than not, you've got songwriters, you've got session musicians, you've got musicians that play in the live version of the band, and you've got a front man, and it takes all of those to make great music. Joe Cocker is a great example of, of that 
he wasn't out there writing great rock and roll music. He's not a great piano player or a great uh, guitar player. What he is is one of the great rock and roll singers. I think um, he was the first primal scream of rock and roll, man. I well, mean, I mean it's, you know, there's there's a a thing that you know he he, he do that uh, that sound he does in uh, like uh, with a little help from my friends. And, you know, when they do that live, that was never going to be in the first part of the set because he said, I have to get up to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, but there's, there's, there is something that, that, that is very kind of, uh, that's a guy that when he's saying, you, and you can see it, you watch him, that isn't the guy that walked out onto the stage. The moment he started performing, he was Joe Cocker, the performer, not Joe Cocker, the guy. Uh, you know, and and he did that with everything and put all of himself into it in a way that's you know it's very rock and roll. It it, it is rock and roll. I mean, he'd show up in a two dollar shirt <laughs> and just tear your heart out, man. There, there there was no doubt about it. it and, and you can recognize what's your elemental song by him? God, you know, the, I think it's really hard to pick with with Joe Cocker. I I, I, I tend to go back to feeling all right. Uh, but I think that, that, that God, I you know it's it's just really hard to to come up with one for him. But does anybody have a? Suggestion? I think he won up. No, I think I'm feeling all right. He won up the original. I, no, I, I think that's so. It, yeah, I I I don't think he ever. Very few songs he didn't one up. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, it's hard to one up the Beatles, really. He won up the Beatles, but but both on yeah. "She Came In Through the Bathroom Window" and with the little. Oh, I forgot hands. about that version. "She Came In Through the Bathroom." Which that's a, a that's great, great. Yeah. Um, later on in his, do what? I didn't get my metal metal Joy version song. Oh, you didn't. No, I didn't. Okay, what was it? What, what what is your elemental joy division song? Uh, she's lost See, I guess we all just figured it was gonna be Love Will Tear Us Apart, so but 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 you're going with She's Lost Control. If you want something that's what Joy Division's all about, yeah. Okay. I It's interesting. I, I never, I'd never heard that before, but it makes perfect yeah, sense. Somebody threw out in the studio threw out the idea of like, well, why don't we do something like Love Will Tear Parts of Love Will Keep Us Together? And I don't know if anybody knew exactly where Ian was at in his head when that got suggested, but, you know, as the lyrics show, he had a lot to say about that idea. But I, I think she's lost control with that. Uh, I don't know. That, I guess the, the, the deep down sound Joy Seen the uh, the biopic? I think it's called Love Will Tear Us Apart. Have you seen it? Okay. Um, I was I watched that like and like I told you before, I'm not a huge Georgian, but I, I thought that was a, a 
a real eye-opening film to see. I, I really enjoyed it. I would recommend it. Was it called Love Will Tear Us Apart? It's called Control. Control, that's it. That's it. Yes, I would like to see it. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't even know if it's you know available anywhere else. Um, here, head, here, head. Um, uh, just, just a, and I'm sorry, Jim. I, I guess we all just assumed it was going to be Love Will Tear Us Apart. Um, later on in Joe Cocker's career, he did a version of. Uh, Unchain my heart. It's really with T.M. Stevens on bass. I think he produced the track actually, and it was a great cut. Yeah. Um, he also did a version of Speaking of Randy Newman. You can leave your hat on. You can leave your hat on, right? So I mean, he was. He I mean, was, and, and and you know that is that's ignoring his his kind of middle career as a crooner, where he did stuff like Up Where We Belong or whatever. Should not even think about that, but yeah, he did. I mean, you know, and. and and again, I'm not saying, you know, like, uh, that that's uh, the greatest, uh, you know, I mean, Stevie Wonder has his cheese, too, and no one's going to deny he deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, I, it, I don't have a problem with Love Lift Us Up Where You Belong. Right? Right. I mean, it's... it's You are so beautiful. And I'll tell you what, I got I mean, hell, he can sing. He Jennifer Warren's, man. No, I, I, I had no problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, but but going back to it, songs like "Feeling All Right," "The Letter," those are just great rock and roll tracks. They, they are. There's there's nothing. And again, he's one of those guys. I keep going back. He's not in there, right? You know, it just it's, seems it's like, like the meters. How did that happen? Yeah, it, that just seems to be something that nobody could make that uh, omission without kind of. Yeah. You know, feeling I mean, guilty about it. I, exactly. One. All right, my number one. I think Jim and I probably uh, treaded similar ground on this one. My number one is Devo. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how the fuck they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at this point. I think they were just nominated the first time. Uh, yep, and... I don't either. No go. Um, <laughs> I, they were in my bubbling under list, too, and... I don't understand. Kent, Ohio's greatest band. Yeah. It's it, they're, they're. I remember when when uh, Are We Not Men came out, and it just took us all by surprise. Everything. There was nothing like it, no. really. And and you don't have everything from. There's no Oingo Boingo. There's no Heaven Seventeen. There's no Flock of Haircuts. There's no without this band. There's no, this yeah. does not happen. No, well. I would go as far as saying we're talking about Joy Division. I don't know if we've had bands like Joy Division or, um, <clears throat> hell, even something like, I, I, I don't want to, something like Duran Duran. I mean, those bands kind of got this, this sense of difference between them. They sound nothing like them. No. They're, they're nothing like them. But they had this real openness to be different and to step away from the pack. And a lot of bands can't do that. No. And, and Devo and Kraftwerk are really what brought a lot of the electronic sound into everything. And the thing I like about Devo, it's always been ironic. But they always let you down easy. It was never a smack. You know, they weren't going to knock your teeth out with it. But you had to sit and think afterwards. Yeah. Well, it, after it was over with, you didn't necessarily cheer. You were just kind of no, like thinking you, you, it through. 
Um, did you ever hear Mark Mothersborough talking about when they played? Because Sire Records, they were on Sire Records, which was owned by Warner Electric. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and that's where Rolling Stones recorded for, the Rolling Stones Records. Did you ever hear him talking about when they played their version of Satisfaction for Mick Jagger? No. They said he walked in in the middle of the day, and he's just half interested, and they start playing it for him. And, and it was some executive and the Mothersborough brothers were sitting there. And... Uh, said Mick just sat there kind of stone-faced for like half the song wasn't really impassive and all of a sudden jumps up and starts dancing going I like it I like it (laughs) yeah and isn't I mean I think that the reason Devo ever got their shot was because on stage David Bowie announced he was going to produce their yeah their first album Brian Eno Brian Eno was going to get involved in that and I think that that, that, that's the thing about uh, you know you got to remember like I said these guys are from Kent Ohio they were at Kent State during that that they were they were during the Kent State and I think that they really took that to heart and their whole kind of de-evolution message kind of stems from what they witnessed. And I think that that's the thing, is that they capture that the the zeitgeist of the, the changing period of time they were in, as well as any band ever had. Yeah, they weren't hippies. They were the reaction. Right, yeah, that's exactly what went on to that, yeah. yeah. And they're, they're, as much as they are a band, and they're a great band, they're, they're a bigger art project. Uh, well, that's what know. they started as. Right. They started as an art project, and... They were all played. They were musicians before that. They weren't like novices. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's a and that real, you know. Well, without savaging individual bands, you know, because a lot of a lot of the punk bands had at that time, you know, everything that had come before it, you know, Devo basically had just well, Mother's Boss said they just wanted to do this and do their thing without the blow, and boy, did they ever find a way really to do that. For for our younger listeners who don't know, Mark Mothersborough of the Devo was also the composer of the Rugrats theme song, <laughs> and it's probably made more money from that than he ever yeah, made. Well, no, her drugs, those albums are platinum. Um, are we not meant? It, um, it did endear him to my children. That's for sure. Yeah, see, it, it's it's. So, all right, gut feeling, gut feeling, which starts out and does not end up anywhere near where it started at, and that's the reason why it, it kind of just winds Jim, up through a lot of rapid fire changes. Jim, did you say something, buddy? Yes, I did. What's uh, Mark Mothersbaugh also did the covers for Henry Rollins' books for T thirteen sixty one? No, uh, I did not know that. I didn't either. Um, they also did. You, anybody here ever hear the Devo Music album? No. That yeah, they put it was it was Devo's it was there and it was, I mean it was one of those kind of experiment art experiments, but it 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 was pretty cool. I dug it. I I got to admit, man. All right, my number one, and I cannot. This is of all the bands we've mentioned, this is the one I can't believe is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Motor City Five, the MC Five. We talked a lot about punk and more extreme kinds of music this time. These guys defined it before it was even something at all. The the dolls were mentioned, latecomers. Okay, uh, Iggy, that's cute. MC Five were the real thing, not just musically, sonically, uh, politically. These guys made a stand and stood stood with it. And, and really, I think one of the greatest uh, faults of this is that the MC Five can't be. Uh, now brought in 
with all three Beastie Boys doing the induction uh, speech, <laughs> as it should have as been. As it should have been, yes. Yes. I, these guys defined a lot about what became punk rock. They also defined a lot about what became heavy metal. They were also heavily influenced by people like Coltrane and Sun Ra. But, I mean, they would go off on these extensions. And, you know, we belong to a, a certain Facebook page where one of the guys in there just loves to take a contrarian opinion. And he will sit there and tell you that the uh, Sonic Rendezvous band, which was Fred Sonic Smith's band after MC5, was was better. They weren't. That was that band was a unique sum of the parts. There there was something about the way they played together. It was always just teetering on falling apart, but it never lost its lockstep. And Wayne Kramer was one of those early yeah. guitar heroes that that kind of gets forgotten about. Uh, there was a great interview with him a few years ago after he, he released his book and he talked about his heroin addiction. And these guys were considered uh, hyper left wing politically. I mean, they were they were they were considered Marxist by some. And he was like, "No, we believed it, but we were just in it for the chicks, really." Which and and Wayne Kramer, who is very much a leftist individual and has those kind of concepts, is uh, very close friends with Ted Nugent, which I find to be just absolutely yeah, hysterical. But the MC5 should have been in there a long time ago. And you can't put any song in there but Kick Out the Jams. The jams. you got to. And it's got to be the original version with Kick Out the Jams motherfuckers, not this Kick Out the Jams brothers and sisters yeah. shit. Um, with all the feedback, too. Oh, there's the whole listen, there's, there's a great live video out. That's on, it's on YouTube. And it's him doing, uh, I think it's Wayne County Community College or something like that. They're doing this concert at a college. Wayne State, that's where it is. And uh, they actually open up with Ramblin' Rose, which Wayne Kramer sings. And it cooks. Then Rob Tyner comes out and they do uh, kick out the chance. Black and white film is all it is. But it's great. It's great. I think Wayne Kramer ended up doing a lot of scoring for uh, some film work. And I think he did almost all of the scoring for the show Eastbound and Down. Uh, did he really? Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I did not yeah, know that. Which is a great show. Too. Kenny fucking power. I know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Antonini wanted a, uh, a piece of his work for Zabriskie Point like he did. Well, what he wanted was careful with that axe, Eugene from Floyd, but he wanted one of uh, MC5's pieces too for that one, which I guess makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that was about it. There's 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 also a great video of, of Wayne Kramer and Lemmy doing Sister Anne from. You know, it's, it's, Speaking yeah, of somebody else uh, whose band has, has not made the yeah, all of you know what? And I think we all agree that Motorhead was wonderful, but there's several bands. Let's let's go ahead and go over the bands that we all agreed on. These are the artists we agreed on in order of where they ranked on us. Um, sure. Yes, yeah. they were. You're right. They they should have. Yes, you're you're right. I agree wholeheartedly. You know what else? You can look at them as kind of laying down that template for pet bands like Sonic Youth. Yeah, because they did a lot of a lot of their stuff was was you know orchestrated noise. Um, so they they were they're one of those key bands that 
and they were never popular. They never sold a lot. Now, everyone I've ever known from Michigan will tell you they know MC5. That That's somebody they, they just immediately gravitate. Well, the thing that strikes me about the Hall of Fame, and not because I don't want to run far afield, but just the simplest thing, and I think some of it's demonstrated in what we've talked about tonight. The Hall of Fame doesn't like anything it can't put in a pigeonhole. Well, it that, needs something yeah. that's clearly defined as far true. as a genre. Is it heavy metal? Is it this? Is it that? You know, whatever. Well, well Nine Inch Nails just went in. Okay, they were inducted a few months ago. Industrial rock. There's no Nine Inch Nails without MC5. No. It doesn't no, exist. No, that's you're right. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There's no Nine Inch Nails without Devo either. No, there's not. Yeah. There's not. All right, the, the bands we agreed on, um, first of all, and I'm going to let Jim and Jeff take this one because they're the two who agreed on this, uh, and uh, that would be George Michael. You both said George Michael? Oh, we did. Uh, Jim, you want to start that one off? Well, I was thinking if we're going to, uh, if we're going to take rock back to a lot of its roots uh, in pop, then you've got to take pop singers and pop artists seriously. And George Michael was simply one, if not the best, one of the best of his era. Um, and, it, and people forget how transgressive it was for a guy that we all knew that was being straight for cash. Yeah. Uh, to get up there and sing I Want Your Sex. Uh, and then when he did Freedom, and it became the anthem for the, not post-AIDS, but the Living with AIDS, the first real... Yeah, yeah. He, he was making that stand. He sure was, man. He well, was. And he wasn't dishonest about what he did at all. I mean... No, no, no. And that, that's the thing about it. The, the only, he felt the need to be closeted, and that's not a call that any of us could make for him. But he, even in that closet, I mean, when you when you sit there and yank MTV's chain by name in a song that you know is going to be a big enough hit to where they'll have to play it, but there there was something brilliantly in the line about George Michael, and I know that it, you know uh, it was kind of a real brief burst. He essentially had a decade of serious creativity. But the guy had the chops. He wrote some of the more classic pop songs of his time. Uh, you'll hear Killers Whisper everywhere. Uh, and, man, well, Jim, that was going to be my point, too. The thing that, not to overlook, the guy could really craft a decent pop song. He wrote enough of them. Decent, I think, is underestimated. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this. I think in his own way... He was as subversive as Elvis Costello or Leonard Skinner was. He had no problems basically telling the truth, and that's not always something people can do. And he did it in such a fashion, like you said, Jim, that it was just right back in your face. Uh, there was no backing down with it. And, and I, you know, I, I would not have picked him for my list. That, that's just more of a personal preference than anything. But it's kind of hard to argue. And, and you know what? He, Careless Whisper, we, we made a joke earlier about Andrew Ridgely, who was his partner in Lamb. But he made Andrew Ridgely a co-writer on Careless Whisper just so Andrew Ridgely would always have an income, yeah. basically. Just so he could... Absolutely. And, and he wrote that at 16. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Good to his friends as anybody Yes, he was. And I'm going to tell you one other thing. I told you before, I, I don't ever turn off 
boys are back in town. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go is the best heat wave rewrite in history. Okay? <laughs> and I, I'll never turn off Father Figure. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great song. song. I don't care. Great song. Well, the guy basically stood on stage, all but said, listen, I'm a friend of Dorothy, and fucking did it and sold millions and millions and millions of records, man. At the end of the day, I don't see how he doesn't have a place. So, I have never turned off. What would you... I'm your man. What would you guys say is his emblematic song? Oh God! Uh, freedom. I think freedom has to be. Yeah. Free, freedom. freedom. I, I'm, I'm going with "Careless Whisper" for the simplest reason. I, that seems to be at the heart of where you realize his songwriting. Is well, we're not going to play both of them. So, no. um, the next band is one. The next three bands, actually, three of us uh, are. Three, at least three of us agreed on. Uh, and the first one is Iron Maiden. Boy, those guys. First of all, if you've never seen Iron Maiden live, you're missing Twice. something amazing. I mean, it is there is it is as powerful as anything you will ever see. Or see, the, this, this, everything is there with this band. The songwriting's there. There's no, there's no weak spots in the band. The rhythm section, and I'm not just talking about Steve Harrison his his hot licks and stuff. They're rock tight. They, 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 basically, they took what what Thin Lizzy gave us and they took it to a, a different level almost. And Bruce Dickinson, you know, Ronnie James Dio and a few other guys can rival him, but that's about it. I mean, Rob Halford maybe, but even Halford doesn't have that. The, there's a certain melodicism. To his voice that not a lot of no. heavy metal guys have. Yeah, Alfred doesn't come close. And I, I'm a fan of back when he had a voice. Yeah. But he doesn't even come close. It's not the same. It's not the same. You're right. He's he's Gillen uh, in his heyday, but uh, that band to me is just and well, and and you bass players. You know, listening to Steve Harris is always a treat. Well, well I think I think that there's there's very few bands where the prominent the primary songwriter is the bass player. Yeah. And, and Iron Maiden has that that where the bass player writes the songs, and I think you can tell because if if I may, if that yeah. wasn't if that wasn't a heavy metal band, and you just were like paying attention to the, the core of it, mm-hmm. you'd be like, this is the greatest groove band that England ever it, produced. I agree. If I may, when you have a rhythm section player who is a part of that, you have a more rounded, more rounded, fuller band sound. And we've talked about rhythm sections before, um, but having somebody... The, the Beatles are a great example, too. You've got a, a, a guy who's a key creative component. It's not just you know, it's not just like the guys in Almost Famous where the bass player and drummer don't even get mentioned. Right. Um, but there's, a, there's a, a real bedrock sound to it. Nick Mason, who is the uh, drummer for, the, uh, Floyd. for Pink Floyd said that a rock band is basically a drummer, a bass player, and a collection of novelty acts. Yeah, and I think that, that if, if you take a great rock and roll song, any great rock and roll song, and you just heard its bass and drums, that it would be instantly recognizable. I agree. With just those two elements. You, Not the, I mean, and that's, that's saying that, that you don't need the lead guitar 
to make a great rock and roll song. What you do need is the bass part and the drums, and you need them to be not just good, but good together. Good together. But somebody that's all right, and this is somebody that's listened to enough of it, and then have seen them live. Mm-hmm. I will say they're unique in this. Harris and Dave Murray play together and ask the drummer to keep up. But, well, this is really melodic off the front end. There is, but there's there is a history. The Stones were kind of built the same way. Uh, Bill Wyman is playing around Keith Richards and Charlie Watts, right? Uh, and it creates a fuller sound, and that it's 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 a different way of playing. The Beatles were the same way. Uh, the Police also. I mean, they didn't follow traditional trajectories yeah. that that most rock. But bands when the play. when the Maiden gets up and gallops, they're 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 running. No, there's no I mean, they're at full gallop. Well, uh, okay, guys, emblematic Maiden track. My mine will actually uh, mine's Revelations. That's interesting. Because it changes so many tempos, so many times. And and it, I think it's also, uh, it has that broad, epic feel that so many of the really good Maiden songs do. See, to me, that almost ties into that whole dancing bear trick that prog bands fall into. Look, we can change. Oh, but I, but I like the way it does here, because it, it still gallops the it way does. it's supposed to. I, I'm going to choose Dial Your Boots On. Yeah, that's great too. Because it's simple, it's impactful, it is then distilled down to the very essence, both in attitude and in music. Did you have you, no, Jim? You had the other one who had Iron Maiden. Who? Who? What would your uh, emblematic track of theirs be? Yeah. Although you and I have both talked about how we would have loved to have seen uh, when they played. Uh, Run to the Hills oh, at, at, at Rio. Um, you can see it online. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah we talked about how, how powerful it had to have been to have been there for that. Um, That's another one right there where Dave Murray and Steve Harris take off and run. I mean, and they're just gone. All right. The the other one that three, I, I think three of us picked this, and this is a band I fucking despise. I really hate them. I, if they come on the radio, I turn them off immediately. But they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's Jethro Tull. I didn't have them, believe it or not. You were the one. And who I'm didn't a fan. Have them. You were the one who so. didn't have them. Yeah, you know, I, I think Jethro Tull, in, in, they kind of encompass almost every different kind of rock and roll. There's elements of prog rock, which is maybe the the most recognizable thing in there. There's elements of heavy metal, obviously. But early on with the albums like this was, yep. there's elements of folk rock. Um, you know, there's also some cabaret. Yeah, look, I, I get you know people that, that never want to hear Ian Anderson utter a word. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I totally understand that. But I think that that it, it'd be hard to dismiss uh, Jethro Tull, even if you only said like, look at the at, at the strength of Aqualung as an album. Uh, you know, which is a pretty damn good album. Uh, the title track's good. Locomotive Breath, I think, is a great song. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, but but if you go past Ian Anderson into Martin Barr, who I think is a, an incredible uh, musician. Um, you know, I, I think that, that Jethro Tull, I, I get why it's a band that people love to hate. Uh, and, and I don't necessarily want to listen to all of their songs or any of their songs uh, all the time. No, but I can listen to Fat Man and it's and it's slam at a former band member and laugh my ass off. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and some of the stuff gets a little too 
you know, a lot of bands suffer from this thing where they kind of have a, a de-evolution spiral into following their own worst excesses, and Jethro Tull could, could definitely be considered that way. They had a habit of going, good album, bad album, good album, bad album, good album, bad album. Sure. That but, happened too often. With but I think, I think that, you know, all of that said, they have the longevity, they have the yeah. hits. You can't argue with it. Yeah. That, that, to me, is an inarguable case for the rock. But like we said, prog and heavy metal both kind of get the short shrift. And fun. Extreme bands, they tend to go... They tend to be very political and go for those centrist bands uh, instead of the extreme bands. And Jethro Tull acted was like no one else. I'm, I'm going to tell you this. I'm a little older than a couple of you guys. You do not remember how huge Jethro Tull was. Not just as a, a classic rock band. The, except for Led Zeppelin, there was no bigger band on the face of the planet in the early 70s. There was not. And they played Chattanooga at Memorial Auditorium, and it was considered the, the biggest rock show this this city had ever. I saw them there had. twice. Well, this was this was. Yeah. Well, I'll put it this way: uh, I was at the skating rink when they announced yeah. it. If that tells you anything, um, but they uh, they 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 were huge. They were one of they were a dominant band. Uh, they were an alpha band. Well, I didn't know anybody. And this may be more uh, a symptom of my own disease of who I spent my time around, but I didn't know anybody that didn't have a copy of Aqualung hanging around somewhere. It was always in somebody's vinyl. I did not. but You did not. I did not. I had no Jethro Tull albums then or now. Um, I do have a soft spot for Aqualung, probably because, you know, as I've gotten older, I really tend to agree with it quite a bit as far as the Essence song, and he doesn't as much anymore. But there's a real... That album does have a real sense of urgency, though, that I don't find in a lot of their records. Um, I think the one I enjoy one of the most is Bursting Out, because I think it's such a great live album, too. Uh, It's got a great sound. Okay, who all chose it? Uh, Who all chose Toe? You did not. Emblematic song. I'm going to let you guys do it, because... I'm not even going to choose one. I mean, I'd say Aqualung for anybody that never listened to them because that's the song that you can listen that's to good, and yeah. say, yeah, I get what this band is about. Jeffrey? Or Jimmy? Uh, who? <laughs> I ain't gone by that. I, well, I, I meant to say Reverend Jim and after, after saying Jeffrey, it just came out. People don't remember. Aqualung was as big of a hit as, as I mean, it was right up there with uh, with with Stairway and Layla and I mean, it was considered it was one of those. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was you couldn't turn on album or in radio without hearing. As 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 some as a fan, but not one that had it on the list, I'm going to add a song that I always felt like was Teacher. You, you didn't have them on your list. You don't get it. Well, I just added mine. Um, 
I'll give you mine because I ain't going to choose one. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, who chose Todd Rundgren besides myself? Didn't you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Todd Rundgren has been nominated now twice. He had a string of albums that. And were, hey, he's up back to back on our double albums. That's right. Yeah. He's, and well, that's right. those out. He had something, anything. Wizard of True Star, Hurting of Me, Kahlo, just as a as a solo artist. Then he produced the band. He produced Bad Out of Hell. People produced. Yeah, forget that. Um, he produced Grand. He produced everybody. He yeah. was. He produced Fog Hat. Uh, he produced. Utopia. Well, I was going to say, he had a prog band called Utopia, which is still playing and, and still uh, recording. He was an early... Do what? He got one of the most perfect rock songs ever out of Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. He, he There was nothing he couldn't do. He, hey, he produced the Hall & Oates early on. He was in NAS. He had this amazing uh, white Philly soul voice that we talked about. He's a hell of a guitar player. He's underrated as a guitar player, and he he was he was one of the first uh, rock musicians to utilize visuals in his stuff. And I think he's also kind of he's at the forefront of what you now call, uh, and it's weird to say this about Todd Rundgren. But of what you'd now call low fidelity or, or bedroom music, you know the idea of a guy that can record all of his stuff in his own uh, bedroom and release an album of just him doing. And you know, I think that that through that you get some of the the kind of later uh, lo-fi bands, yeah, the, uh, guided by voices stuff. But even even he then, and I mentioned this when we were talking about something anything last time. Even though a lot of those, the, the songs we mentioned, Wizard of True Star, something, uh, Wizard of True Star, something, anything, and Hermit, it was basically him playing all the instruments, yep. but it never sounded like right. it. Right, because he's a great musician. It's, it sounded like a bunch of guys having a musical conversation. and He was really listening to himself there. Yes, he really was. And he would go into that category of kind of, you know, would he get in just for his albums? No, probably not. Would he get in... He could be in as a producer, though. Sure. You throw that other stuff on top, and the the fact he's not in there is is, is one of those, especially people from that era, it just confuses him. Well, I think I think that you know he falls into this category that will get mentioned time and time again as we continue this podcast of musicians, musicians. You know, he's a guy that that if you're a musician and you see what this guy does and is capable of. Uh-huh. You have you have a, a level of respect for that that probably goes beyond what the general mm-hmm. public does. Oh yeah, uh, because because you know how hard it is to do that to do it right, and you see how consistently he does that right, and you just think, yeah, that guy's got it. Emblematic Todd Rundgren song. It's it's easy for me to say something like, "We got to get you a woman," mm-hmm. because I think that's his earliest, and that's. You know, this is a guy who, who I mean, he was he wasn't very old at the time. That was like yeah, he was a kid, nineteen sixty nine, maybe when that uh-huh. came out. Uh, you know, and that's another thing. He has he has a long career. Oh yeah, uh, he's still going. Right, right. He did a song with Donald Fagan called Tin Foil Hat" a couple years ago. It wasn't very good. It was, but, he's still but doing it was stuff. Uh, yeah, most but, of his most of his work now is tended towards. Uh, 
He's done a lot of like where the original producers have died. He's doing the remastering work on a lot of these albums that. Oh, you know, yeah. So, so there's what, a lot of, what would you consider? I, I could without for me it'd just be a whole album because you can't do I, an album. Got to do a song. Yeah. Then I'll go with the obvious on this. Hello, it's me. Oh, can't go wrong. With no, that. I mean, I, because um, that album is just. Uh, there's a song on Herman and Mikalo, and some people when they hear it the first time they think it's just this cheesy, goofy pop song. It's called. Can we still be friends? And it's 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 elemental and it builds and it's got this. To me, it defines the melodic sensibility that Todd Rundgren had that sets him apart from other producers and stuff. Uh, that would be my choice. Was can we still be friends? And it's a little bit corny when you hear it now, but it it, it fit the bill perfectly. Just just to follow up this on Todd Rundgren as a producer, Bad Fingers straight up. Grand Funk Railroads were an American band. New York Dolls self-titled album, Bad Out of Hell, and XTC's Skylarking are all top. God, I didn't know he had a hand in Skylarking. And that's not man. to mention uh, the band's uh, self-titled album and Stage Fright, which I think he was involved did he, with. Both of. He didn't produce... John Simon produced a self-titled, didn't he? Oh, yeah. John Simon's self-titled Stage Fright. Stage Fright was him, yeah. Yeah. And I think he was involved with, with the earlier albums, too. Oh, he, well, he, he was kind of a house sound engineer for Bearsville uh, studio, Studios. Um, again, just kind of, he's, he, defines, he defines an auteur yeah, yeah. For, for, for the... Kind of a real renaissance. Steve Lillie Lott is jealous right now. All right, guys. The one that we all chose, and it will be of no surprise to anyone who knows any of us, is Warren Zevon. Warren. Warren, we got your back, buddy. Okay. There's nothing keeping him out of the Hall of Fame except John Winter's vindictive whiny ass. Uh, John Winter, again, is part of the committee. There was a falling out between the two. They had several altercations. What was the one we were talking about earlier? Uh, apparently, you know, Warren was a, a notorious uh, alcoholic. He liked to go to the grape a little for bit. For a long time. And apparently he was uh, under the influence of... Uh, a good set of libations at a Bruce Springsteen concert and kind of uh, showed his ass in some way that made uh, Warner say, you'll, you'll never be featured in a Rolling Stone magazine article ever again. Um, and, and you know, follows through with keeping him out of the Rock and Roll Hall. Yeah. He, he, uh... hey, hey, hang on. I think we forgot something important. Okay. Piss on John Winter. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, well... Yeah. I think John Winter, man, I view that as something as a plus. And if you're such an absolute pussy that fucking rock and roll and somebody being drunk and whatever puts you out, you're in the wrong business. Well, there was they had a long running antagonistic relationship. But no one will disagree with the fact that we would no have no problems. Taking John Winter out into the woods, ripping out his entrails and setting fire to them when he was alive. He is a he is human excrement. Uh, he you know he as much as anybody kind of destroyed rock and roll if you think about it. John Winter is Channel Zero. Yes, I, you know he's got that big glossy magazine to sell Blu-ray players now. And that's, you know, but my thing is that like we we because he did Rolling Stone, we let him have a say in the 
Rock and Roll Hall. Well, he started, but you know what? Like he also does men's like Men's Health Journal, and we're not like inviting him to tell us who the greatest bodybuilders are or whatever. Well, well, let's okay, but this should not be about John Winter. It shouldn't be. This is about Warren, guys. I agree. We all hate John John Winter, but Warren, uh, a he was um, we. This was something Matt and I discussed earlier. He was kind of that middle ground, and not in terms of mediocrity, but in terms of where they would meet between Tom Waits and Randy Newman, of the songwriters that came out of that time and era. He was very much a, a literary songwriter, more so than probably anybody, Paul Simon possibly, but uh, he also had... There are similarities there. But you know what? He was a great... The sad part about Warren Zevon's career is that Apparently Jim's burrowing into the the paper there. <laughs> there was a. It's, it's sad that he had to play his last several, quite a few years as a solo act. I mean, he played Chattanooga. He was a solo act. He had to, his his roadie came out and played some percussion stuff. Yeah. Warren was a great band leader. He got his start leading the Everly Brothers band, yeah. and those bands he had on the Excitable Boy and and Bad Luck Streak tours. Just they smoked. They they were great, and and you know I we've kind of taken some. He was Hemingway, okay, in every way. He was kind of a man's uh, songwriter. If you've ever had your heart broken, you spent all night alone with Warren Zevon, a cigarette, a whiskey, a tumbler of whiskey, and now you're a man. Okay, Warren is one of is one of a handful of. Of rock and roll songwriters who could be included in a Hall of Fame for songwriters, period. Yes. I mean, the, the level of composition to me in rock and roll is matched, you know, maybe by Becker Fagan, Lennon McCartney, uh, and a handful of others, but also ranks up there with guys like Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, yes, Rogers and Hammerstein, Gershwin Brothers. I mean, it just, this is, this is not great rock and roll music so much as it is great music. Well, yeah. he, he had a. A he he had he was a classical music fan. Now he did not have as much classical training as some. But, but I, well, I think when he was young, he actually trained with Stravinsky. He didn't train or, with Stravinsky, but he lived near Stravinsky, and they actually well, like, visited him after yes. school. Or... And he was a lover of classical music, and he brought this harmonic complexity and a melodic, a unique melodic style that nobody else had. Now. Randy Newman had a very melodic style, but his melodies are very traditional. It's more that, show tune. Yes, they're, they're they're more traditional melodies. That doesn't mean they're stolen, right? But they sound like more where a melody should go. Then on the other side, you got Tom Waits, who has these also has complex harmonies, but he has this, this completely disjointed style. Sometimes right. Warren made it work. Yeah, you him. listen to a song like uh, "Desperados Under the Eaves," yeah. and 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 he, he what he does is he has these progressions that go in a direction that you're anticipating, but then right before you get there, he it, just throws something in there, it goes elsewhere, and it sounds exactly right, but not like you expect. He write the melodies he writes sound like the lyrics he's singing. Yeah, he's, when, he's a when California falls into the ocean, like the mystics and statistics say it will, you know, uh, 
emblematic Warren. By, by the way, this we don't need to belabor the point. Warren Zevon belongs in there. Uh, we're going to make it our life's work. What, what's your emblematic? I'm voice? going with a personal favorite, which paints imagery and everything else, and has the vocal quality. And it's uh, it's equal parts Tom Waits, it's Leonard Cohen, but anyway, for me, it's Carmelita. Carmelita is a wonderful song. It's a good one. Reverend Jim. Yes. Your Warren Zevon pick. Yeah, it was, it was it was just it that's, was that's something you don't mm-hmm. see and that's one of the reasons I think Devo gets the backlash that they get to connect to an earlier band. Uh, is that there's always this askew look that rock has at people who can write songs or albums or whatever that are funny. And there's just it's supposedly that's just not done. Uh, and one can do that. If I had to go for him, That's that's, and it's really weird because that's considered one of his later songs. But it's it's it was a mid career song, and um, you're you're right. He, he everything he nothing, and that's the thing we, we were talking a minute ago about how his melodies would be kind of off kilter. It didn't sound unnatural though. It sounded perfectly legitimate, and that way he was a lot like Bird. He was a lot like Charlie Parker. I mean, he was he almost had to create his own vocabulary. Splendid Isolations. Where the came from? Yes, yes. Yeah. If, if something like, even something that's simple and forgotten about now, like Night Time in the Switching Yard, which was his disco song, you know, but it had layers of, of complexity to it that were missing in anything else. And I still say it's about being stuck in a bar, deciding whether you're going to have to take the dude home instead of the gal. You know, it's it just, he says it's not, but Matt... Uh, you know, God, it's so hard for for me with Warren to pick one emblematic track because I think that you know from from his earliest stuff uh, to his most recent stuff, you can find something on every album that's oh, yeah. a goddamn yeah. great song. If I have to nail it down to one, and in the context of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I'm going to say Lawyers, Guns, and Money because to me it's 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 hard to, to say there's a better rock and roll song. You know, there's not. It's got, I mean, there's good, they're equal, but nobody's. It's got everything you'd want out of, a, out of a song, it's and right there, it, it rocks. It I, genuinely I'm, rocks. I'm, I'm going to go with something off the first album. I'm going to go with Muhammad's Radio, simply because it sort of embodies everything we've talked about that he he has. And what year was that done? Seventy five, I think. Yeah. Um, and well, he had, it wasn't his debut album. He had an album called Wanted Dead or Alive that came oh. out a few years before that was. He, he completely disowned it. Kim Fowley, I think, produced it. Um, but Muhammad's Radio is one of those songs that kind 76. of... 76. 76? Yeah, there you go. Muhammad's um, Radio is one of those songs that sort of... It, 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 is, it is perfectly... A perfect example of how Warren can speak to you in certain ways, different ways at different times of your life. And and you, you know, know that song, which which you know, if we say Muhammad's Radio is one is the emblematic song by the artist that most needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and isn't, it features an artist we said shouldn't be. Uh, Stevie Nicks is on that. Well, we haven't said that yet, but we're about to. Uh, we're gonna. Say we're that. about to. Um, actually, 
the Eagles, the Eagles are on the Warren Zevon albums. Right. Uh, oh yeah. That's... There's a lot of people I don't care for on Warren Zevon albums. But there's a lot of great. Look, I, I think I think that you know you've got uh, Leland Scar on bass on a lot of his tracks. Mm-hmm. Waddy Wachtel on on guitar. Waddy was was Waddy his, is, is his a big foil. part of Warren's. Waddy, Rob, Waddy was his foil. He, well, really he got was. around though too. So and Jackson Brown produced uh, that uh, Muhammad's radio stuff. So, yeah, he produced the first album, and he was listed as the producer on Excitable Boy, but right, according to the biography, he didn't really do that much. I think Warren did most Yeah, of I think he did. And, you know, and, and Warren, if, if you if you want to get into to Warren, go and listen to that last uh, interview he did with uh, Letterman, and he does, I think, three different tracks on there, including Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner, which... Is another inclusion, as I might Which have said. loves that song. Yeah, so. but and, and and Warren said his music never had a better friend than David Letterman. Yeah. But you know, Warren was unique. He, he is he is singular in in rock and roll music in a way that to me is both explains why he's not there and argues that he absolutely should be. Yes, there, there's no reason for him. Excitable Boy is, is his most popular album because it had Werewolves of London on it. But I want you to look at the, the sheer spectrum of that album. You've got songs on there like Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner, yeah. which is just, just surrealistic. Yeah, no one else could ever have done Yeah, a surrealistic right. song about a headless mercenary. Yeah. And then, even that, that, you know, I think we've said before on the on the double albums thing that the best albums are judged by their filler. What's the filler on... You know what? The only filler on there is Veracruz, and that's a hell of a song. A song. You know, Tenderness on the Block, maybe? But that's, that's what I was going to say. you got Veracruz, which is this very cinematic... Um, and almost lush piece. Then you go into Nighttime in the Switching Yard, which was one of the hit singles off the album. I, I'll, I'll stand by that I think Accidentally Like a Martyr well, is, I, that's is what I was the great song. That's what I was going to. You go to all those songs, you got these off-the-wall songs like Excitable Boy and Rolling and, and uh, uh, Nighttime. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, he puts Accidentally Like a Martyr, which... That's a heartbreaking that, song. That song... If you've ever had your heart broken, it will pour a little salt on it yeah. if you're not careful, you know? But it's a beautiful song. And it's... G.G. Allen covered. Yes, he did. G.G. Allen did. But it's also an example of it's beautiful, but it doesn't have, like, tepid power ballad melodies. Right. You know, it's 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 an odd song. And it song. includes, the, you know, the, that, the instrumental portion of it... Uh, you know, where it's basically these three chord hits that kind of goes, I guess it's almost like a circle of fifths uh, truncated, but it, it's very much in that, that realm of the kind of uh, modern uh, classical music that we're talking about that he could incorporate in ways that, you know, prog musicians sometimes tried, uh, but I don't think anybody did it more successfully than Warren did. No, nobody did. And, 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 and you can come up with simple phrases that in his songs... Should have done, should have done. We all cry, you know. Um, you look at, at homie, to, homie, Carmelita, homie. You look at, at the, the Life Will Kill You album, which, which more than any other Warren album is the one that I go back to time and time again. And he's got songs where he says stuff like, "I can saw a woman in two, but you don't want to look in the box when I do." Do yeah. I mean, who writes like that? I I have said several times that there are three songs I want played at my wake or funeral or memorial service or whatever it is and the one I want played 
when they're taking my urn to wherever it's going to go, is my rides here. Okay? And I want the whole song played. Yeah. I'm going to tell you guys something. Warren is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not the institution, but I told you about five years ago, I took the family to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We went up to Cleveland, went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, then went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame the next day. It was, it was my wife Kim, my daughter Alexis, and my two sons Hank and Jack with me. And you go through this area where they've got these these plexiglass uh, little like slanted stands that have handwritten lyrics that were the actual handwritten lyrics that the artist wrote. Like it had, it had uh, London calling, oh, and you can and you can see where certain words were marked yeah. out and stuff like that. When I went, I stood there in front of Robbie Robertson's handwritten lyrics to The Night They Drove Old Dixie yes. Down and just stood there in awe for just a minute. Oh, well, you, there was my, I looked over and my whole family was sitting there looking at me because I was looking at another, I think I was actually looking at, uh, uh, I think it's God Only Knows is, is, was one, the one they had there. And I, my family's looking at me and they're smiling. And, and I'm like, what the hell are they doing? And I go to the next one, and it's the handwritten lyrics to play it all night long mm. from Bad Luck Streak and Dancing School. And the most amazing thing, I swear to you, because you can see where he made little marks and stuff, you know. He spelled brucellosis correctly <laughs> the first time. There was no, and that's the first thing I thought of was, yeah, that's right. There's a, brucellosis is actually mentioned in the song. And I, all I could think of was, he didn't, doesn't look like he, you know, because if, if I had spelled brucellosis as a lyric, it would be B-R-E-S, B-R-S. You, you know, I, I would have all kinds of mark outs, and then I'd finally go look it up. Right. Not Warren. Right across the first time. That's brucellosis. All right. I think I've been more impressed had they actually had the handwritten lyrics to my shit's fucked up. That's a, that's, that is probably the most emblematic of all Warren yeah, songs. Yeah, I think that. About it. yeah. Speaking of covers, we mentioned covers tonight. His version of Back in the High Life again. Oh, brilliant. It tears something into it that nobody else had. I think that that's, you know, that's a thing is that Warren, it's easy to look at his body of work and say, this guy was obsessed with, uh, with death. And he was. Uh, but I think that he also had the... the he saw the beauty and melancholy in a way that some artists occasionally uh, kind of skim the surface of. But Warren was one of those guys. Warren that, got down in it, man. Yeah, and it's not maudlin. It's not uh, mopey. Nope. It's, not it's at all. that he sees the honest beauty and melancholy and and can write a song from it that is, that is itself beautiful. Yes, it and and it, it it's it's transcendent shit. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's very few artists that can turn whatever kind of agony or pain they felt in their life into art. The the best example is Vincent Van Gogh, a man that turns, you know, a a staggering uh, amount of loss and hurt and pain into some of the most beautiful art the world will ever see. And other artists kind of glance that. I'd say Richard Manuel could sing his pain, and I think Warren could write his pain. Warren could write his pain, and and it was... And there's a torture. You're talking three tortured souls if you think about it. I mean, yeah. Warren's battles with alcoholism. Warren, we call him Warren here. Yeah, we're close. Um, it battles with alcoholism, uh, and he was amazingly centered for somebody who dealt with all that. And part of that was his coping about mechanism. his own failings. Yes, he was. He was open about it. Uh, the notes that you know his wife edited that oral biography. He actually wrote the notes for that for her right. and said, "I'll make this warts and all." Yeah. Um, he could also come back with, you know, 
one of my favorite lines is from Boom Boom Mancini. Oh, yeah. The name of the game is be hit and hit back. You know? All right, so. And that is such. Boom Boom, it's almost like spoken word with music laid over it the way he sings. Oh, man, that, that album, that track, I mean, it's probably his hardest rocking track. Yeah, it's, Things it's, to it's do funny. in Denver when you're dead. Who else could do that? Right. You know, who else could do that? Who He named checks Waddy in that, as a matter of fact. Um, okay, I think that's the one thing we've all agreed on is Warren Zevon is not only worthy of being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but is a god who once walked the earth. And, and he deserves to be recognized. Now, finally, our favorite part of the whole thing, we're each going to talk about one artist that we think could easily be kicked out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to put any of these people in. Someone who we don't think belongs there. Uh, Reverend Jim, who you got? Is Reverend Jim not there? I don't think he is. What's well, Laura Nero. Who cares? Who's a good writer? I'm not begrudging her anything she made out of her career and life or whatever. But who gives a damn? Yeah, she's she's a she's a minor leaguer, definitely. I she was kind of a cult artist, but uh I don't Yeah, I mean, did she hold it for whatever when he went to pee or something? Because I just don't get it. I I, I don't either. Um in fact she wrote Stony End for Streisand and Eli's Coming, right? Did she write Eli's Coming? She wrote Wedding Bell Blues. Wedding Bell Blues, yes. But those aren't, I don't consider those great songs. Okay? I don't, I don't consider them, you know, those are, those are, those aren't even worthy of, of Broadway show tunes to me. And, and, Oh, well, they belong. Oh, the Spinners belong in there. In fact, the Spinners were on my short list, yeah. Um, that was... That was a... That was... Well, first of all, it's Tom Bell that produced a lot of those spinner sides, and yes, they belong in there. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, she has done nothing to alter the trajectory of rock and roll at all. I think, nothing. I think she's one of those people that's in there less because of what she was and more because of who she influenced. Because you had guys like Todd Rundgren who said when he started listening to her, he stopped trying to write songs by The Who and started trying to write Laura Nero songs. And I think that, you know, uh, the guys from Steely Dan said that they were influenced by her. Obviously, Joni Mitchell's hugely influenced by her. Oh, I don't consider that to be a strong point. I'm sorry. I'm not a Joni. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. But that's what I'm saying is I don't think that, that, that I think that she's influential enough to, to have justified her inclusion, even though I don't think she's probably yeah. deserving on her own. That, 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 that's. I'm playing devil's I, advocate. I understand that, but that's a stretch. You know, that's like saying, 
uh, you know what? We're we're going to pick him the All Star team because there's nobody else on the Florida Marlins who we can pick. Yes. And that's well, our a, that's our esoteric baseball reference for the night, y'all. I'm sorry, but I agree, I agree with your choice wholeheartedly. And I'll be honest with you, I'd completely forgotten she was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when you said her name earlier. I was like. Okay, fair enough. If you think of her, if you don't know, if you have no clue, and somebody tells you and you go, really? Then they don't need to be there. I I agree. Matthew. So, uh, earlier one of my ones for inclusion was Link Ray on the strength of one song, and now I'm going to argue for exclusion on the strength of one song, (laughs) uh, which is Percy Sledge. Uh, And I I think Percy Sledge, hell of a singer, uh, you know, really good at what he did but what he did was uh, when a man loves a woman and that's it he was a journeyman at best you can't name another song by him without looking it up no and I don't think that that song I mean yeah it's the song of its summer or of its maybe even of its decade I don't know but it's not A a rock and roll song and B if that's all you ever did it's not enough I like I say, he was not anybody... I've heard more from Percy Faith than I have Percy Sledge. So. Well, Percy Faith sold more records. I know. Um, I, I, I don't disagree at all. I, I, I've never understood... Um, he, he was never even considered one of those top R&B guys. Right. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that happened is that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has felt the need every once in a while to throw a bone out there... Uh, in in some direction that isn't really necessary. It doesn't. It isn't necessary to include every you know '60s uh, uh, soul artist that ever had a hit because they influenced some other guy. I mean, if that's the case, then you know, fuck it, put Dobie Gray in there for that song. Or is Benny King in there? I think Benny King is not. I don't. I was just looking that up. I don't know if Benny King is. And Spanish Harlem to me is as good a song as. Uh, and it's certainly been covered more. Um, you know, I, I, and I don't or Stand I, By Me or, uh, you know, any of those. those yeah, I mean, and, and, I mean, he had more than that. So Benny King's in as, as a drifter and has been nominated as a solo artist but isn't in as a solo artist. See, there you go. I mean, you know, that's, that, it, it really, it, to me, that's the thing that I, the reason I say Percy Sledge, not because I think, fuck you, Percy Sledge. I got nothing against the man or his song. What I have against it is that it's it just shows how fucking arbitrary it is. It, it is. Folks, be sure to pick up a copy of Matt's autobiography, Fuck You, Percy Sledge, available where all fine books are sold. Um, I, I I have no disagreement with that. I, I, like I say, I think he was at best a uh, kind of a, you know, sort of a... Well, this you know, he's trying. They're trying to pick him to sort of represent right. those those kind of journeyman soul guys. And there was some Joe Tex people like that. Well, okay. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they do this thing where you know, like like we've said, they started in, including uh, session musicians, right? People like the E Street Band was was yeah. an example we used. I think that Ringo's in that way. Oh like, yeah, I think, he is. I think George, Paul, and John all got in on the merits of their individual whatever, and they were like, and Ringo as a supporting act, which says everything about the career of Ringo Starr, but he sold more albums than any of those three guys. Well, and I'm going to tell you something. No disrespect to Ringo, 
Ringo got in because Paul wanted him in there. Sure. Okay. And, and I'm not. God knows. You know, I I, I love Ringo, but uh, and and I think he's one of the more underrated musicians on the planet. Oh yeah. But uh, but but it's just also arbitrary. All yes, it is. Um. Okay, so we've got uh, Laura Nero, Benny King. No, Percy Sledge. I'm sorry, Percy Sledge. Yeah, Benny King belongs in there. It is not. Um, Jeff, and this is one we're all waiting for because I think this is one we all kind of agree with. Stevie Nicks. Yeah. One album, one song outside of her usual gig, and believe me... I barely remember I the sound. I think she like sacrificed a chicken and uh, did a hex, and they had to incorporate her. I, I she she doesn't have the solo career to warrant it. First and foremost, not even close. Now that you know, I have an immense distaste for Stevie Nicks' voice. I think she's a fruitcake. Um, I think I've told you guys before. The only real advice I've ever given my sons about women is if you go to their house to pick them up for a date and they have more than one album with Stevie Nicks on it. Run! Don't walk. Run out of that house. But uh, I, I, Jeff, you're right. There's, there's not enough there to, to, to really put her, put her in the hall. Not just, and just there's two Stevie Nicks voices. There's the one on Gold Dust Woman singing that song, which actually I tolerate. And there's that one on that single she had. What was it? Stand back. This sounds remarkably like mosquito torture, and it's it's a lot like it listening is. to Steve Perry for me, which I didn't stand the sound of his voice either. Steve Perry on helium, yeah, it's there, just annoying. It, it's but again, she just doesn't have any chops outside of that. She she had a what, what did, let's see, she had solo up. She did a the duet with Tom Petty with Petty. Yeah, I'll letters. tell you what, she was she could have been a great heartbreaker. Okay, if if they ever needed a female heartbreaker, she was it. But there was there's no real. Again, there's no real heft to her solo career. And, I mean, Melissa Manchester probably had the same effect. You know, and, Listen, they could have put but, Nicolette but, Larson in and I would have enjoyed it more. Well, they they finally put Carol King, who should have been in years ago. Sure. Who was everything that Joni Mitchell wasn't. Yes. I mean, Carol King was a true artist. They, they didn't put her in... I, I think they put her in as a, a contributing member, not an artist yeah. herself, which is fair. But uh, they there was a lot said about uh, her being the first <coughs> female to be inducted as a group member and as a solo artist. And my first thought was, A, Christine McVeigh is better. Amen. And, and I don't want to compare just because they are female, but... If you're putting in people for for, for for reasons like that, you're kind of defeating the purpose. Um, you mentioned Tina Turner. Right. I mean, yeah. Obviously, Ike and Tina need to be in there. Ike is the father of rock and roll. But Tina, you know, on her own has some great... She had a most significant a, solo absolutely, career than Stevie Nicks. Far right. bigger career than Stevie Nicks had. It wasn't even close. Um, it took him forever to get Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> which was weird to me, yeah. too. Um, so there's that's just that kind of a natural... Um, the, that John Winter kind of desire to be always politically correct. Yeah. And you know what? Rock and roll is fair. It is tolerant. It is not politically correct. There's a big difference. Uh, my choice, and when I sit... Do what, brother? That was right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we said we said that. No, I, I actually thought it was the leather. I oh, no. my bad. No, I know that leather and lace. confused, yeah. But Edge, you, Edge of 17 is just her sucking all by herself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> She's... She sucked in a variety of fucking. I, I was going to say for, the whole thing was sucked to. Well, I think, and I think that this this is something that we'll run into as we get into solo artist kind of careers later on. Is that you know anytime a person becomes famous because they're in a great group like Fleetwood Mac, which is more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime that they go past that, and then it's just you see that person's own kind of indulgences. Yeah, it, it's just, it's like watching or listening to a, a, a less enthralling version of her tracks from the Fleetwood Mac right. album. And, and it, I think that's the problem with it is that if you, when you when you listen to Rumors and you, you, okay, here's the Stevie songs on Rumors, you're like, oh, you know, that's balanced out by some great musicianship and by some great songwriting from the other people because everything that Stevie ever did uh, you know, that wasn't her singing somebody else's words and music was influenced by those people. You know she didn't write Rhiannon and then not take it to Lindsay Buckingham and say, hey, what do you think, and get offered some stuff. People in, in groups, even when they're writing songs by themselves, uh, are influenced by the people around them. Yeah, they are. Once they go into their solo stuff and they have everybody telling them how great they are, it's too late almost. Um, it, 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 it creates this kind of false narrative that I think the Hall of Fame has been guilty of. Yeah. Um, you know, they put Kiss in a few years ago. Now I'm not knocking Kiss. I I enjoy Kiss as much as... They have as their place. Ever. They have their place. But <clears throat> the minute you put them in there, you start putting this narrative, well, that it's because they sold a lot of records. Well, so did Chic. Right. And they're not in there um, now, and they weren't the cultural icons that Kiss was and stuff like that. So you create this narrative that's easy for people to fall into otherwise. Um, well, that goes back to the subjective nature of all this anyway, and the reason why Hall of Fame is so damn difficult to do for this sort of thing. Well, I, I'm going to go ahead and give my art. We're going to do one last go around here in just a second, but I'm going to give my choice for uh, the, the artist who deserves does not deserve to go in there amongst any of the guys we talked about, and that is... Uh, Bill Withers, I, I was stunned when I heard that. That was the Harold Baines of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's second a, baseball obscure reference. To that, I, I mean, he way. was he was a very, by all accounts, just a wonderful person and a very good man and a very pleasant musician who had four or five hits that actually, uh, you guys can't see this, but Matt is staring daggers at me right now because. Uh, he loves... Yeah, if you're on the phone, I can't see you. Uh, he had these very pleasant songs. They weren't that big. They weren't huge hits. He was not somebody... Again, he didn't alter the trajectory of rock and roll at all. Um, I have nothing against the man, much like you have nothing against Percy Sledge, but I I don't think his, his career did not have the heft to go in there over a lot of people. And there were several other people I, I could have chose for this. I, I don't think Blondie belonged in there. Um, Stevie Nicks was certainly on my short list. But um, Cat Stevens, I, I don't think he belongs in there. One out. Uh, yeah, but 
to me, Bill Withers is is one of those choices that was made because I don't know why it was made. He he, he wasn't. He is not somebody who has ever even thought of it uh, until later. Rufus and Shaka Khan, they belong in there more than Bill Withers. All right, now well, because they've got well, here's the thing though. Since because you're going to get counterpoint here, I'll just go ahead and tell you. To me, Bill Withers is parsley. And the thing about that is, is I don't have strong feelings. If I don't have strong feelings on a band, it's usually not a good. Thing. Yeah, I agree. It's, so, it's, there's there's a certain tepid quality. Yeah, it's just to it, it, yeah, tepid neuter, whatever you want to call it. It's now, just not there. Well, let's so go. so I think I think that that's that's I can see that if you're coming from the standpoint of of Bill Withers, judged through, uh, you know, the songs that you would hear on the radio, ain't no sunshine. I've heard the albums. You know, you and I've talked about the albums. But I, th- I think stuff like I think Still Bill's a great album. Saturday Night in Harlem is a great song. It closes out that that first album. I think the fact that that this guy, I mean, you know, that was that's a, a Muscle Shoals sound album. Uh, you know, and to me, I think that, I think with Bill Withers, you you get actually a fair number of hits. Uh, you know, especially compared to some of the people that we've talked about that uh, are in there and maybe shouldn't be or should be in there on the inclusion of one hit. Um, and that's not because... I, I think for me, what it comes down to is that I personally really dig Bill Withers. I would argue I, that he's not rock and roll. Well, that you, you'd mentioned that before. You know, I, I brought up Willie DeVille. I love Willie DeVille. Willie DeVille doesn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame sure. either. Um, and it's not that, that yeah, it's not. A, this isn't the music I like yeah. Hall of Fame. Yeah, exactly. It's not the Hall of Very Good either. It's, right. It's it's. But th- but now this this comes down to. Gets to be a concept. Well, it can be, yeah. But but. I'm not. Luckily, I luckily I haven't gotten to God yet. So, uh, yeah, I, but that, I, I, but I'm not, I'm not saying there are there are plenty of people in the Rock Hall of Fame who are not the greatest ever. That, but they've earned a shot in. Uh, Depeche Mode, for instance, um, that just went in. There are a lot of bands. I don't think Bill Withers, in terms of influence, and I'm not saying he was. Again, I'm not saying this, but David Bearwall would be the closest, the closest comparison I could have to Bill Withers. I didn't expect to hear that. But name guys, a couple of pleasant albums, really good stuff. That David David album, uh, Boom, Welcome to the Boomtown. I like that album. That's a wonderful album. It's a great album. But it's the same thing. What about... So? It's not that... You know, it's not a matter of, of prolificness. It's, it's, it's a matter of... of uh, I don't think his stuff stands up to, I mean, I think he belongs in there probably more than Stevie Nicks, if I have to put it that way. But for that reason, for, for, the, that. for the sheer volume and, and the sheer for the sheer output. Use me, use me, 
but 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 again, you're talking you're talking there are you can talk out points for anybody. You can talk out certain points for anybody. He does not reach that level to me. It doesn't. And it's it's use me didn't we play use me a couple of yeah. nights ago? Um yeah, it's, it's it's not that I think he's horrible, and it's not that I just don't think he belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's it's basically yeah. My thing is Rick Mailer threw a lot of lot of lot of innings in in five four five exactly. six. Oh, that's games, a great comparison. Doesn't mean I'm going to fucking see. Yeah, he's got a spot here. Whereas you can do what now? Do what? Oh. Jerry Royce isn't in the Hall of Fame either. And nobody's pushing for him. Do what? Well, that, but that you're 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 not saying what I'm trying to say here. I have nothing against Jerry Royce anymore. Than I have anything against Bill Withers. But I don't think Jerry Royce belongs in the, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, my favorite baseball player of all time, my favorite baseball pl- my favorite baseball player of all time is Glenn Hubbard. He didn't belong in the Rock in, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He, he he and I can say I enjoyed watching him play. He was a greedy guy. He knew how to take a walk. He had a great pivot. But that doesn't mean he belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Same thing for Bill Withers. Um, yes, we're going to have to do a baseball show, folks. Well, it, it's I think that one of the things that plays into all of this that we're saying is that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fames, uh, you know, that, that essentially they're inducting, what is it, five artists every year? It's five to seven, yeah. You know, yeah. so I think that the, that becomes incredibly arbitrary. It does. That you, that, you, that you have a limited scope of that because... Well, there's also a gap because remember when they first started doing it... Right. They, their first, like... Two years were all those great early rock and yeah, rollers. Sure. And then all of a sudden they're trying to catch up the rest of the way. Right. Right now I think the Foo Fighters are eligible now, aren't right. they? Right. They're gonna be they're gonna get a major they've just push. They're good year. at inducting sure. everybody. And they should be in there eventually. Before everybody we just listed? No, they shouldn't be in there before anybody we just listed. Nobody. Yeah, unless I, you're gonna take Laura Nero out. Well, that's Is just anybody it. tired of looking at Dave Grohl and induction ceremonies. Uh, by the way, Dave just has such a good time doing what he's no, doing. All right, um, one thing I want to do before we go is I want to go around the room and guys, anybody you had bubbling under that you want to mention, you don't have to make a case for them. Just say what you want to say, uh, Jim. Who else did you have bubbling under that you think belongs in there? Uh, Black Rose. Period. Black Rose. Okay. Again, period. And who? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, anybody else? He knows I'm a huge fan. Basically, Chris Robinson to me is this is where gospel meets southern rock. I'm of the same opinion that the way they've, uh, I mean, they really led the to me they led the revival back. Well, to that's, that was. I, I I don't just I'm not. I would be. I love the Black Crows. I listen to them more probably more than I do most bands. But mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I I'm. I think they'll. You say they'll think. You think they'll eventually get in. I don't know, but I would be happy. I, I would be happy if they did. I would be very happy if they did. Because they have about three albums the, there. That is that the only one you got? Is that the only one you got? Jim, huh? Yeah, is that the only one you got? No, Jeff just Jeff was just talking. 
Yeah, the less I say about that, the better. Um, I, 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 I let. They were honest about it. Yeah, that's their thing, man. It's all keyboards and good-looking videos and everything else. But the songwriting's there, and they've got an undervalued guitarist, without a doubt. Guys, i got to fly. i got some Bill Weathers records to listen to. Go burn them. Talk to you. Matt, what else, who else you got? Um, I think the the we talked we kind of briefed. By the way, I will be calling Jim back to tell me he's full of shit about yeah. Duran Duran. I love Jim, but no, not that's my that is my all time least favorite band. I can tell you that right now. It's not on my list. But yeah. uh, we talked about the meters. I think the meters. Yeah, they. I, that that is my one of my bigger uh, and, and it bridges. You know, to me that bridges rock and funk and 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 it's one of the great backing bands ever. Um, oh. I, I think uh, Nick Drake. I kind of Nick Drake touched choice. on. Uh, I think he you know, not a real happy guy. No, <laughs> no. But I think you know the early stuff. Uh, really good. Pink Moon as an album still really stands up. Boy, it sure does. Um, it does. And, and it's a great like if you put that album on at night when you're driving with the windows down. There's not a much of a better album. Um, uh, and so yeah, I think that's that's. You know, there's a couple other ones that I thought of, but I think I think that that pretty much covers it. Jeffrey, yeah, actually, um, shoot, um, for me personally, Robert Palmer. Boy, that's a good choice. He's not in. And I'm a little surprised Jim didn't choose him, or that none of us said it because that is a really good. And not only that, who did? Who did Robert Palmer use as the backup band on Sneaking Sally yeah, Through the Alley? Was the Meters. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I, Robert Palmer had an amazing career in retrospect, too. And, and you wouldn't say so much quietly. I mean, you could, but just so good at what he did. It was, and, and, and the thing about it is, even when he had, it would, even when he had a hit on the radio, it was still kind of a quiet affair. I mean, it just, there never was yeah. it. But it still sold. There was still an audience for it. And, I mean, to this day, they had a, a who was it? It's not Jules Hollins. The other one's on in Britain now. Was uh, talking to somebody. Uh, I'm trying to remember who the band was. Talked to, you know, Palmer, 70s. Stuff's a big influence. And I'm sitting there going, really? It, yeah, he, he's, the man had—he was a total package too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he really was. Um, and that yeah. even that Vinegar Joe stuff early on was well. And, and that's the thing—he had no problems moving between genres like that. Because I think of that, and then I think of something like a—you know—he had the Power Station mm-hmm. stuff that he did, and then I listened to something like a solo, like I, I didn't mean to turn you on, which is such a great groove to me. And, so and when we talk about a guy like that, what do you think about somebody like Huey Lewis? I see. I here's the thing. I, about the same thing I think about Bill Withers. Yeah. Okay. I'm that, just that's not amazing. a big fan. I'm now, not a big fan either. But I'm saying, you know, if for his little period of time there, he, he had, had albums like Sports and Palmer had a, Palmer kind of ran across uh, a couple I'm, of genres. He I'm not saying I think Huey Lewis is is where Palmer is. I'm just saying, you know, that's a name that you can throw out there for. Sure. Well, I mean, there's an argument to be made. I don't disagree, Matt. There. And there are a number of people uh, in bands like that, I think, that have been left out that they will discuss, I'm sure. But Palmer's just one of those to me that's, you know, I mean, for a guy whose career started in the early 70s 
and just kind of successively went through different genres. Like I said, he had plenty of uh, time on the face of, uh, you know, rock and roll. Uh, like for at least 20 years and I don't know that anybody's ever actually made a serious push for the guy. I don't think they have. So. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, Jim was talking earlier about bands like Oasis and Paul Weller and stuff yeah. like that. Robert Palmer was bigger overseas than he was here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's a it's huge thing. And, and it is, as, as again, as, as Reverend Jim said, it's the American Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I will say, and this is more just on a personal note, I saw him once in 86. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, as a live show goes, you you know, you got your money's worth. He yeah. did not he, cheat you on what you got. You got the full Robert Palmer performance. And the thing that surprised me so about it was, I don't know, I, I expected, you know, I didn't know, you never know how a singer's going to translate. Is this going to be like a... You know, Roland Gift from Fine Young Cannibals, who was lousy live after, you know, having such an appearance on those albums. You know, it sounded like a very unique voice. It wasn't very good live. Palmer was very much, uh, you know, there was that studio quality to his voice that he still maintained on stage. Yeah. It was worth my time to have seen his I think what, one we talked about earlier, too, that I meant to I meant to bring up was uh, Graham Parsons. Oh, that. that that's hard for me to say. Well, I, mean, I agree. That's, that's a good choice. I'm just saying Grant Parsons the birds should have been the birds there with the birds. Happen. That does not happen. They're not who they are. Yeah. Not including him with the birds was a huge oversight. Oh, yeah. that's. I don't know why they wouldn't have. I think we said Judas Priest as well. Yeah, that's... Well, I mean, that to me goes right along with uh, Maiden in a lot of ways. I mean, now there may be there's stylistic differences there, but at the end of the day, uh, they had as much to do with what would come in the 80s and early 90s as anything out there on the metal front. Well, I, they, 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 I mean, even, I told you before, even something like Sad Wings of Destiny had some oh, quality stuff to it. it I, you know, I'm not well, I, I think of some, you know, there's stuff that, you know, because they, 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 they didn't have a lot of radio friendly. You get breaking the law. Uh, mowing the lawn, mowing you know, the lawn. Peter Green's cover, who, God help me, it's one of those where I actually love the original more. I mean, I'm a big fan of Peter Green. But, I mean, you know, they had, uh, you know, just stuff like albums like uh, British Steel uh, that were, you know, huge, huge influences on so many bands that got their start. As a matter of fact, Metallica will be the first to tell you, without Judas Priest and uh, uh, Iron Maiden, you know, we wouldn't be doing what we do. Sure. I was kind of surprised that none of of you uh, prog rock uh, aficionados threw out King Crimson. Uh, That's one I was going to mention next. Well, yeah, Um, we didn't get to your... And I'm not a prog rock aficionado, but I think Crimson... It seems like they'd be up there, yeah. I would think so. Knowing Robert Fripp, he probably doesn't. Who else you got? Who else you got? Anybody? That was was basically a biggie for me right there. King Crimson was one of the first... Bands I actually thought of that I thought should go in there. Mm. Um, like see, I, 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 I kind of lowered them because I felt like the other bands kind of belonged there before them. Uh, especially like Toll, okay? Now, I like King Crimson. I don't care a bit for Toll. Right. But, again, look at the whole body of work. Look at the, look at the influence well, I think, they I think that there's, that there's a, has to be an understanding not just of how much we enjoy these artists, but of their spot in history. Yeah. Yes. I, I'll say, I, I'm not going to go on the way home and listen to Link Ray. I'm not. But that doesn't mean I don't think he's not yeah, that's important. So valid, you know, that's, it, it's, there's a history to a Hall of Fame inclusion beyond just what they sound like to me. Now. There has to be. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's not Jeff's Hall of Fame. Right. I mean, there, there are bands that I don't give two shits for. 
I mean, many of them that wind up in the Hall of Fame. But at the end of the day, there's an argument to be made. I mean, if somebody's had an influence and sold a shit ton of records, they've earned their spot, most likely. I well, think. I'll tell you this. Uh, the other band that I'm not wild about, I like them okay. Um, I think Oasis had a pretty... Say, right. Now, if it was... There are a couple two albums that were... If it was huge. Brent's Hall of Fame, I'm going to mention two artists to you that I think actually are in my Hall of Fame, and I think they should go in there as well. I think they deserve to. Donnie Hathaway, first of all. Oh, yeah. Um, the whole time we were talking about Bill Withers, I was thinking Donnie Hathaway. Oh, yeah. Um, God, that live, that live version of The Ghetto, if nothing else. Um, and uh, this is a band that... I think gets swept under too much and does not get the credit they deserve. And that's the Go-Go's. Oh, yeah. Um, Another one I've seen. I have, too. And they put on a great show. They have a real nice body of work. Um, sure do. And they've, they've never been anything that they weren't. Um, I didn't care for any of their solo stuff. No. But as a band, they have a certain chemistry together. That just is as good as anybody's. And that God they Bless the Go-Go's way. album was as... So, it, it rocked as hard as anybody. So they paid. They helped pave that route. Once we get into well, I'm not talking of, about that. I'm talking about in terms of... Uh, you, you're right, they did. And that yeah. deserves some credit, too. But they, they they were a self-contained unit that there wasn't anything like them. No, I, I enjoyed the hell out of them. Once you get into kind of... Into kind of I, I don't want to call it niche bands, but mm-hmm. bands that are more specific... <laughs> Than that, what about a band like the B Fifty Twos? Do you think? Yes, I think they should. They they yeah. they were not on my list, and I don't really know. Why I mean, the Replacements wasn't on any of our lists. No, uh, I think the Replacements one of those bands. Who's Cardu wasn't on the list, right. and that was one of those that Jeff and I or Jim and I two albums, different that, albums. Yeah. Um, the Replacements one of those bands. I think in the rearview mirror looks a little more homely than they did when we were in front of them. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. The B-52s, I really don't know why they're not. They were one of those bands I would have thought would have gone in there. They're, they're in large portion, they're responsible for a lot of that Athens scene, man. I mean, oh, they are. They got the word out. Well, they were also, again, they're a band that's always been themselves. They've always kind of followed their own. Yes. So, maybe because Fred Schneider's so fucked up, nobody knows what to I told you it. before, I want Fred Schneider to give the eulogy at my funeral. Because Fred is just... Fred's just so damn happy. Yep. And I want to hear him. You know? Brent's up and die. I want him to do Monster. He's gone to be with Jesus. <laughs> All right. We're about done here. We're getting worn out. We've been talking way too long. We're going to try to put this uh, out in two separate uh, versions. One of them will have the music included. It will be roughly 38 hours long once we get to it. The other one will be considerably shorter, and it will be shot of any music it will just be us yammering away and you can go look it up on youtube if you want to uh until we talk next week uh i'm brent this is jeff scruggs yo and matt kearns talk to you guys